Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black Talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Aretha, 1942-2018 With one unmistakable name, a musical legend was born. Aretha. Born on March 25, 1942, in Memphis, Tennessee, Raised in Detroit, daughter of the famous gospel preacher, Reverend Cecil L. Franklin. She was born to a world made and moved by music. Her father taught her timing and phrasing, but the precocious Aretha learned young that her voice, with its incessant, pure, ascendant tone, could topple walls and open hearts. It took her to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1987 and at least five of her many top hits have since become classics. Respect, I Never Loved a Man, Freeway of Love, Share Your Love With Me, and Something He Can Feel. In her matchless career, she had 20 number one hits, from Respect and I Never Loved a Man in 1967, to Freeway of Love, the summer 1985. Her fans, though, loved her like family, and it didn't really matter where she was on the charts. She sang with utter, moving, emphatic emotion and captured hearts near and far. Her voice, her gift, rang like a bell in the night, but she didn't only shine on stage. During a recent interview, she described herself as a domestic goddess and what job is harder than raising black children in America? As black mother, she was indeed a goddess, reigning over the rhythms of life and love at home in Detroit. For a black woman to go from the Jim Crow South to become a queen of the kingdom of music 
and then a goddess at home is no small thing. She was, is, and shall ever be Aretha, who lightened and enriched the hearts of millions around the world. She returns to the celestial choir after 76 summers of earthly life. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. And as soon as we did get the voting, get the right to vote, um, then the narrative became, uh, it doesn't do any good to vote. And uh, one of the, you know, and and that kind of narrative uh, has helped the right wing. Um, If you look at the... um, when um, Malcolm was killed in February of 1965. Uh, Later on that year, we got the Voting Rights Act in August of 1965. Then going on up to the first election uh, after the Voting Rights Act, we lose King. And how do we show our gratitude for these people laying down their lives? We don't vote in 68, and Nixon wins. And this is how the right wing has solidified its power in America. It's not through, it's through low voter, voter turnout. This is what, they, what happened with Carter in, when Reagan got in. Reagan, if black people would have voted during that election, Reagan would have never got in. And that's the truth. Ahead of a historic election featuring the nation's first major black female nominee for governor, officials in one Georgia county are considering closing the majority of polling places in a mostly black precinct. A vote on the plan is scheduled for Friday. Critics claim it's a move to suppress black voters. At a meeting last week, an official from Randolph County told community members that is not their intent. We wanted to hear you. You all have accused us of something we haven't even done. We have not decided. One or two have made their mind up that they know what's in our mind. They do not. We have not decided. But in a state notorious for minority voter suppression, many county residents are against the plan to close seven of the county's nine polling stations. Here's one Randolph County resident speaking at last week's meeting with the elections board. This audio comes from CBS affiliate WRBL. We might as well get ourselves and get our act together with ACLU and get ready to file a lawsuit (laughs) because there have been decisions that have already been made. Rose Scott is a journalist and host of WABE's Closer Look. Hi, Rose. Matt, what's going on? Well, we're talking about Randolph County. Can you tell us what the stated reasoning behind this proposal is and where the idea came from to close the polls in Randolph County? Surely I can, Matt, but I want to back up a little bit because I think it's important for folks to know, you know, Randolph County is just about 160 miles southwest of Atlanta, so it's in a down in the southern part of the state. And like a lot of rural areas, you know, when it comes to polling locations, they may not necessarily be close like it is in an urban area like here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So there was a proposal made by an election consultant, a man by the name of Mike Malone, to close seven of the nine polling locations. And his reason, uh, as he stated, was that the polling locations were not in compliance with the American Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. And therefore, he had suggested his recommendation was to close 
seven of these nine polling locations. And Randolph County is a very rural county, has about two cities in it. But that closing those locations as the ACLU of Georgia and other organizations see it would heavily impact uh, African-American voters. Officials from Randolph County Elections Board said the plan is not intended to suppress black voters. But can you give us a sense of what the demographics are like in Randolph County? Well, Randolph County is just about 7,700 people, and it is, I won't say overwhelmingly African-American, but the higher percentage there is African-American, but also just not African-Americans. I don't think that people are going to focus on that, but also understand we're talking about a rural population here. We're talking about a rural area. So whether you're African-American or or white or what have you, I think the issue is that closing these polling locations, closing seven of these nine polling locations is is problematic for anyone. But because this county is primarily African-American, I believe that's why the ACLU of Georgia and other organizations are are concerned. And the concern is that it would take a, quite a long time for people to drive to a new polling location. And also, I imagine they might not even know that their uh, polling location that they're accustomed to going to has been closed. Are those the, the issues in terms of impacting the ability of people to vote? In my conversations with uh, Andrea Young, daughter of civil rights icon Andy Young, who is the executive director of the ACLU of Georgia, made a very good point, I think, in that when you talk about rural communities like this one in Randolph County, everyone doesn't have access to a vehicle. And she also said that closing these locations would mean for some people driving 15 miles or more or trying to get 15 miles more to a, to the next polling location, and that is problematic. Now, the backdrop to all of this is the governor's race, and you have uh, Democrat Stacey Abrams, who would be the first female African-American governor in the country ever, and then you have uh, Republican Brian Kemp, who's the secretary of state who recommended the elections consultant who came up with this proposal. Can you give us the dynamics of the gubernatorial race that's the backdrop for all of this? Well, I think it's important to note that according to Secretary of State Brian Kemp and his office, they did not recommend Mike Malone per se. Uh, There was an official from Secretary of State's office, from Brian Kemp's office, who recommended that they find somebody. Um, We had a message from Secretary Kemp's office saying that he in no way had any authorization over this matter. However, uh, records do show that Mike Malone did make a small contribution to Brian Kemp's campaign. And what is Democrat Stacey Abrams saying about this whole controversy? Well, Stacey Abrams for a long time has been an advocate of trying to prevent voter suppression. I mean, it's something that she was doing when she was a House minority leader here in, in the Georgia legislature. And it's something that a lot of you know, civil rights organizations have been fighting for a long time, as you know. There were calls for Secretary of State Brian Kemp to step down while he was running for office. He found that not to be uh, helpful or productive, and so he has remained in his position. Does Randolph County have a particular history with voter suppression? I can't speak to that, Matt. What I can speak to is that if you look up voter suppression in in the South, the history mm-hmm. of it is, is clearly there. I don't think anyone would deny that. And then since you've had what some call the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, um, when situations like this arise, you have a lot of civil rights organizations that are saying, look, this is something that's been happening. This happened, you know, decades ago. And, and by their admission, they're still fighting the same fight. 
you're the host of Closer Look in uh, on WAB in Atlanta. What mm-hmm. are your listeners saying about this this whole controversy? What are, what are you hearing from them? Well, what I'm hearing from listeners through emails and social media is that they are concerned that all of this is happening right before a very, very big election taking place in November. Uh, it could be historic for the state of Georgia. So anytime there's any problems or anytime there, there's something that looks that doesn't look right as relates to voting, and particularly in a state like Georgia that has a history of voter suppression, I think a lot of people are concerned. Rose Scott is a journalist and the host of WABE's Closer Look. Rose, thank you for covering this issue and for giving us your insights. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Six decades after Brown versus Board of Education, the reality is school integration remains a distant goal in many parts of the country. In Sumter County, Alabama, where enrollment in the public schools has been virtually 100% African-American, the new university charter school has opened with the goal of changing that. For most students, this will be the first time they'll be learning next to someone of another race. Cheryl Wheeler-Stort of member station WBHM has the story. Welcome to University Charter School in Livingston, Alabama. Of the school's more than 300 students, only about half are black. And that's big news in Sumter County. It's the first weeks of school, and some fourth graders are getting to know each other. They each have pieces of colored paper, and they can do anything they want with them. The idea is to be creative. Teacher Maury Mordecai cheers them on. They put theirs together and said it represented a rainbow. Is that not cool? Mordecai says she wants students to collaborate. We have such a diverse group, and to see them all working together as one and them talking about it is just extraordinary. And you can't get experiences like that everywhere. You're probably thinking, what about Brown versus Board of Education? The Supreme Court ruling was supposed to desegregate schools with all deliberate speed in the 1950s. But it took years for Alabama to actually desegregate. And when it did, as in many parts of the country, whites living near blacks moved out of their school zones or started new private schools. That's exactly what happened here in Sumter County. Ashley Strickland is white. When she was growing up here, she traveled to another county for school. She says she probably would have done the same for her four-year-old, but now she's sending her daughter to pre-K at University Charter, a public school operated by the University of West Alabama. I've got friends with different race children, so she's grown up that way. It doesn't make a difference to her. It's important for the kids to co-mingle. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, about a third of Sumter County residents live in poverty. Its public schools are 99% black, and achievement is consistently low. The system received a D on the last state report card. Sumter County, like so many rural counties in our state, suffers from a lack of highly effective teachers. That's Joyce Stallworth, a retired University of Alabama education professor. She isn't convinced a charter school will solve the county's achievement and integration challenges. Could those resources be used in some kind of fashion to improve the existing public school to make it attractive to white kids and their parents, to black kids and their parents, to all kids and their parents. In the first week of school, Maury Mordecai's students worked on a project. 
interview a classmate, then share what they learned with the teacher. One thing a lot of them had in common. They were going to miss some of their friends. So the fact that they're gaining new ones is so awesome. It's by no means clear that this one school will solve Sumter County's integration problems. But these fourth graders are making new friends with children they might never have met otherwise. For NPR News, I'm Cheryl Wheeler-Stewart in Birmingham. This the city of Chicago. Chicago. So here's the scenario. Two students, one white, one of color, are attending the same high school, and yet their opportunities and academic success are widely different. What's happening? Is the problem deeper than geography, class, bias? Well, filmmaker Steve James is on a quest to find out. He and his team followed a diverse selection of students at Chicago's Oak Park and River Forest High School. The district's racial, economic, and cultural mix reflects the nation as a whole, so his findings have big implications. He has a new 10-part documentary series called America to Me. His series examines crucial issues like the effects of race and privilege on education. It premieres on Sunday, August 26th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the Stars Network and runs through October. Steve, welcome to Midday. Great to be here. So how did you start this project? Well, for years, I've wanted to do this. I've lived in Oak Park for a long time. My kids came through the school system there. And it it has struck me for years, and not just me, is that here's this community. It's very liberal. It sits right on the western edge of Chicago. I live four blocks from the city line. And it's it has much affluence in the community, and but an economic range. It's diverse. It's incredibly progressive. I think we went 90-10 for Hillary in the last election. <laughs> And it has a, and it's very proud of how it has been welcoming and diverse in its history around that. And yet, there has been this inequity in achievement between black students, particularly, and white students. That's for decades, and in and in the last twelve years, the gap has actually widened. So the gap is widening in this city, in this neighborhood that is, on the surface, pretty well integrated. Yes. When was the moment in your life when you realized something was up, that you needed to focus more time on this? Well, in in a way, the epiphany for me was is that when my kids were in school there, um, we have three kids, and and they uh, were in different tracks within the high school. It's a heavily tracked school academically, you know, from AP and honors to regular track to special ed. And, And there was a range of experiences that my own kids had in that, and I realized what different school it was for them, given that reality. Which struck were they on? Well, I had, I had one, one child who was, you know, a high-flying AP in honors, and I, and I had a child who, because of ADD difficulties and stuff, was in a lower track, right? And, and they had such different experiences of the school and different feelings about uh, their education and about their confidence around education. And it just dawned on me, it's like, if my kids as white kids were having such a a wildly different experience, what must it be like for black kids in that community, knowing what has been struggled against for for decades? From your perspective, you you had this AP Honors child, and then you had this child who was in a less academically rigorous track because of some difficulties. Were their f- friendship pools different? Did they? Have- yeah, oh, yes. And their experiences in the classroom. You know, my my daughter's all, all her classes. She used to complain about it. Uh, the AP classes were often didn't have a single black kid in them, or they might have one. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of conversations around race that went on in that class were very different when they talked about race 
than the conversations in my son's classes, which were heavily integrated. There were also more discipline issues at work in some of the lower tracks. And and I was in the school enough making this series to know that that's not universal. It's not like if you're in a lower track, then it's it's a discipline issue. But there were more. And there was, you know, the level of rigor um, uh, on the part of the teaching was different. The expectations are different, you know. And that translates for any kid, but I think especially for kids of color who have come up in a system that discourages them from thinking of themselves as good students in so many ways or the or that they can be good students. I mean, in Oak Park, there's a reading program at the high school that we feature in the in the series. There are kids who are coming into the high school with third grade reading level and they have been in the system of, of schools in Oak Park their entire lives. So what happened? How is it possible that no one <laughs> Found this out. Well, they, it's not that they didn't find it out. Find it out. It's like that that they push them along, you know. And that happens a lot in American education. It's sort of like we'll do. Teachers will will say they will do the best they can with the kid, but keeping a kid back is not an option anymore in education. And and they're not really doing a level of intervention. And so kids get pushed along in the system, and then it just compounds itself, and they get to the high school. It's frightening because in a lot of ways we see public education as a training ground for the workforce. And the notion that you would push someone through knowing that they can't read well at a third grade level, you could flip that. And the message that I'm hearing is it's okay for you to graduate not knowing how to read because in your life you won't need to know how to read because you're going to be at a level of menial labor, you know, poor for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think – and it speaks to, you know – you know, an inbred expectation in our culture that, you know, is, well, hundreds of years in the making, that a white kid who is not performing well and reading well is is an area of great concern for uh, for a community. It's like, well, what's wrong? Whereas if black kids struggle with that, it's sort of like, well, that's the, that, that happens. You know, that's you know, that's unfortunately it's it's unfortunate. You know, Oak Park's a very liberal community and people will be like, this is terrible or whatever. But what are we actually doing about it is a whole different matter. How did you get access to the school? How did you convince them to do this 10 part docuseries? <laughs> well, um, when I had this idea years ago, uh, the the second thought I have was they'll never let me into the school to do this. <laughs> it seems I wouldn't let you. in. <laughs> and. Um, so what happened was I did a film a few years ago um, on Roger Ebert, and they interviewed me in the local weekly paper of Oak Park. And the reporter asked me, like, is there some project you've always wanted to do you haven't done? And I said, well, I've always wanted to do a film on the high school and look at race and education and the community. I said, but it'll never happen. And then John Conney, who was a teacher there, my kids had a media teacher, he called me up and he said, I read your interview. And he said, actually, I think you could do it. And I said, no way. And he said – well, the administration won't want you in, but they don't get to decide. It's actually a school board decision as to whether you could come in. And he said, I believe the school board might be receptive to this. And he was right. It took a while, and it took some real effort on our part and meetings. But basically, the school board's made up of family uh, of you know uh, parents in the community who volunteer, and many of them run on platforms of, we're going to do something about equity, right? So here we came in. And because I'd lived there for years and because of my track record as a filmmaker, they were willing to kind of take a leap of faith. And they defied the administration that publicly said, we don't think this should be made. 
it's easy to say that you aired their dirty laundry, but when I was watching it, it was painful because you chronicle the lives of individual students. And so you can't help but imagine yourself in their shoes. How did you choose the students? Well, that was <clears throat> tough because we, we and, and, and kind of why we ended up with a 10-hour <laughs> miniseries is we really wanted to get our hands around multiple experiences of mostly black and biracial students, although we introduced white students uh, partway into the series and followed them as well because that was important to do. But we wanted to we wanted to capture the lives of these kids uh, spanning the different grade levels, spanning these different academic tracks that I spoke about uh, a moment ago, and also uh, personalities and interests. And we wanted to follow kids who were active and involved in school life and extracurricular activities. And we wanted to pick kids who aren't because those are the realities. We wanted to big, pick kids who were big personalities and the kinds of kids that tend to disappear into the woodwork in a classroom, and, and that compounds the problem for them educationally. Do you find that a lot of the minority students disappeared into the background? Well, you know, the, the thing I've discovered over the years, and this goes back actually to Hoop Dreams and, and the kids we profiled in, in that film, is, is that uh, uh, a lot, it depends on the class. There, there are a lot of classes where I think um, a black kids will disappear because they feel completely, for whatever reason, out of their element, and they do not want to be called on by that teacher. But then if they're in a class where um, they feel like it is a welcoming environment, that the teacher really believes in them, and, and that they have something to really offer, and that, and that the content is relevant to them, then they can be very different. And we saw that, for sure, in, in the series. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Steve James. His new docuseries, America to Me, airs on the Stars Network. When we look at the student body, it's representative of the country as a whole. What's the broader lesson that we're to take from this? Well, I think there's a, hopefully a lot of lessons. I think that, um, I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to do in the series, and I recruited this incredible team of, of filmmakers who have directing roles as well in it to follow individual stories of kids. And, it, and it's a diverse team and a lot of younger filmmakers than me because I'm not that young, as you can <laughs> tell by looking at me here. But um, we wanted to take you deeply enough into the lives of kids of color and biracial kids principally who are not kids who who are growing up in a besieged neighborhood, like just across the border of Oak Park, say, on the west side of Chicago, who are not attending um, poorly funded public schools, living under the threat of gang violence or any of those things, right? That these are kids whose lives that for a lot of people who might come to this series, and especially white people, would think, well, they, they're fine, Right. I mean, it, everything must be fine for them. So it was really important for us to, I think, for you to see that that's not true. Um, but it's also really important to us to see that to hopefully be drawn into the lives of these kids in a way that you're pulling for them. You're seeing their hopes and aspirations and their pursuits. You're also seeing things that have nothing to do with race, like Grant, our freshman, who is making his first steps towards um, – romance <laughs> and and the painfulness of that we wanted to you know show the lives of these kind of kids because too often we don't focus on that another takeaway for me is is that if we're going to make real change in the educational system 
then it's going to take genuine courage and leadership. And that courage has got to come from white families and the white community. Because in a place like Oak Park, the school is an elite school. It's an amazing school. And it works extremely well for most of the white residents and their kids. But not so much for people of color. But not as much at all. I mean, there are people of color who it works for as well. But there's too, you know, but but it is too many, too many people of color. It's not working. And if the power lies in the white community, which it clearly does in Oak Park, even though there's a black principal and a Japanese-American um, district superintendent, then change is hard because if, if white people are going to have to stand up in this country and say some things have got to change even though it's working for me the way things are now. Was it easy to recruit some of the white families, some of the white students to take part in this? No, and that – I feel like an idiot for that, honestly. I should have known better. Um, but we started to try to recruit white um, families in the summer, you know, during the summer right before school began, but late in the summer. And, you know, it it became clear very quickly that, you know, the word was out of what we were making. The focus was going to be on education and race and inequities. And I think for a lot of white members of the community, I know this, uh, the, the feeling was like, I, I don't want to be the poster child for white privilege in this documentary, or I'm, I'm not going to put my kid out there. And so, you know, a lot of the wealthier residents community didn't even come forward and to be interviewed as a possible candidate because they, I think they just thought they're going to show my big house and our, my wealth and privilege, and I'm just going to be vilified in this. And that was not our intent at all. But that's the thing. You know, in a place like Oak Park, people who are very liberal and progressive are also very sensitive to portrayals of, you know, how they will be portrayed. It's one of the things that's paralyzing in liberal communities, I found, which is is that for all of our sensitivities, um, we rarely have really honest conversations because white liberals know enough about what not to say that might get them into kind of trouble, even if they feel it. They don't articulate it. And so honest conversations become very hard in, in, in a community like Oak Park, which you would think would be the opposite, right? Seattle's a great place to visit because it has I guess you could say a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything. People of color, especially children, are much more likely to be kicked out of Seattle Public Library branches. That's what journalist Erica C. Barnett found in a new story published in the South Seattle Emerald. She told me the details of what she found out. What I found out is that a disproportionate number of the people being kicked out of Seattle Public Libraries are African American or Hispanic. Um, between January and July of this year, more than a third of the people who got excluded from the library were African American, which is about five times uh, the prevalence of African Americans in the Seattle population. And what did you find out with regard to kids? All of the kids who were kicked out of Seattle Public Libraries were children of color, um, specifically either African-American or Hispanic. That's 100 percent of 52 kids who were kicked out. All of the kids? Every single one, under 16. Wow! wow. Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Give them one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. And what did you find out with regard to kids? 
all of the kids who were kicked out of Seattle Public Libraries were children of color, um, specifically either African-American or Hispanic. That's 100 percent of 52 kids who were kicked out. All of the kids? Every single one, under 16. Wow. Is that a situation of a few rogue librarians kicking people out, or is this something of a system-wide problem? It's primarily at a few specific branches in the South End. And when I talked to library spokeswoman Andra Addison, she told me that one thing that um, I may be seeing there is that parents are dropping their kids off at the library sort of as a safe place for them to go um, when they're not able to be taken care of by their parents. So um, so you see a lot of kids at these libraries just kind of hanging out using the computers. So it's uh, it's primarily kids, you know, at High Point, at uh, Columbia Branch, um, and in the Rainier Valley and Central District. What are some reasons why these kids are getting kicked out of the library? This is what I found really interesting. A lot of the things that they're getting kicked out for are things that you think of as kid behavior. So there was one kid who was kicked out for slapping his friend with a laptop cord. That was classified as assault. There was another example where there were some kids that were playing under the computer tables and eating candy. And those kids were five years old and six years old, and they were kicked out with, along with a 10-year-old companion for violating library rules. So what happens when these kids are kicked out? Who knows? They're just asked to leave. And um, I've been told that in some cases the parents are contacted, but there's not a policy about that. You spoke with the Seattle Public Library about this issue. So what did they tell you? With kids, she said, look, we just look at the behavior. We don't look at the race. She told me that because we're dedicated to improving educational and information access to everyone, and this I'm quoting here from Andra Addison, exclusion is the last resort. So she says, you know, we try to tell these kids to behave, but ultimately, if they're making the library unpleasant for everybody else, we're going to kick them out. So what's your big takeaway from this? I think there's an issue that we need to address in our library system and in public spaces in general with implicit bias. And there is some question when you look at these numbers, which are showing, you know, a disproportionate number of African-Americans, both adults and teenagers and children being expelled from libraries. There's a question about why is that happening? I mean, in every individual case, you can say, you can look at it and say, okay, this is the reason this individual case happened. And you can say, well, there's a justification here. But when you look at the numbers in the big picture, you're looking at hundreds and hundreds of exclusions over time. um, And there's a pattern. And when we see patterns like that, we need to look at them with a critical eye and say, do we need to figure out a reason this pattern is happening? That's Seattle journalist Erica C. Barnett. Her story appears in the South Seattle Emerald. We also reached out to the Seattle Public Library for comment. We asked Public Services Director Heather McLeland Weiser why so many kids of color are being kicked out of branches in the South End. That is probably happening because of things that are happening in the community outside of the library. In those communities, we have a lot of kids in our branches who are being supervised by an older sibling. That isn't necessarily the most successful approach for them. She also told us the library is planning to reassess its rules of conduct policy in the near future.
Missouri's incarceration rate for women is among the highest in the country. The majority of these women have children, yet little research has examined the effects of incarceration on mothers specifically. St. Louis Public Radio's Shayla Farzan spoke with St. Louis University professor Shannon Cooper Sadlow about her research on the topic. What I found to be really hard for a lot of the women was that they had this idea of what the perfect mother is. And so when they are, to begin with, not that mother, and then to have this incarceration happen and that they completely lose the ability to be a mother, but they're also considered bad mothers by the society as a whole. So you interviewed 12 women who had had at least one child and had spent at least two years in jail for kind of reasons connected to drugs or alcohol or other nonviolent offenses. And for the women who were able to reunite with their kids after getting out of prison, that process of reestablishing themselves as mothers in the family was often really challenging for them. Can you explain why that was? A lot of times mothers or parents in general think they can just kind of step back into that role without realizing that there has to be some repair that is made to that relationship because life has gone on for these kids and they've adapted and they have learned to adjust and neither person is the same. So there's this this kind of idea that we're just going to plop women back into the role of mother without providing her with any resources to help kind of mend some of those relationships that have been damaged by the substance abuse and by the separation due to incarceration. So along that vein, you know, this is a pretty small group of women, um, all recruited from the same treatment facility. And you acknowledge that it can be kind of problematic to try to make broader conclusions about incarcerated moms as a whole based on this sample. But all of the women that you interviewed described a real lack of services available to them to help them transition back to normal life after prison. What resources specifically did they need that they didn't have access to? So uh, financial assistance, uh, food, housing, as well as uh, individual therapy, family therapy. The problem is, is that when we only focus on one and not the other, people get lost. And so really looking at what, what are we offering families, what are we offering women so that when they come out of prison, they're healthier than when they went in. And that I think is the biggest piece that we're missing is that we're incarcerating people and they're worse when they come out, but we expect different results. The women you interviewed were up against some really steep odds and almost all of them were reincarcerated at least once after being released from prison. But you also found that these women had made a lot of positive changes in their lives and stayed connected with their kids and, and with their communities. Talk to me a little bit about that. When given the opportunity and given the resources and given um, people having faith in them and, and having hope in them, they have gone on to do great things. They take care of their grandchildren. They take care of their ailing parents. They want to go back into the community and help other women who are currently going through what they're going through. And they really start to see themselves as having something to offer where the community says you've got nothing because in this one area you haven't lived up to our expectations. Everybody's like, jails ain't tough enough. Jails ain't tough enough. Prisoners nationwide are on strike. They're demanding improved conditions, better pay, and rehabilitation services. 
The national prison strike started on Tuesday. It is set to end in September. Inmates at Hyde Correctional Institution in eastern North Carolina held a demonstration Monday in solidarity with the strike. And there are unconfirmed reports of other demonstrations and actions at other facilities in the state. John Roberts is part of a coalition of people providing support for striking inmates. Welcome to you, John. Hey, thanks, Frank. Also with us is Eli Albiston. She is an attorney with Edelstein and Payne in Raleigh. Hello, Eli. Good afternoon. We invited representatives from the North Carolina Department of Public Safety to be part of the conversation. They declined. They did give us a statement that says, quote, The North Carolina prison system is one of the most progressive in the country, providing rehabilitative and reentry services to our offender population. Incarcerated individuals have many opportunities to further their education thanks to partnerships with community colleges and other entities, unquote. And you can see the full statement at our website, stateofthings.org. John Roberts, tell us why this strike is happening. Hey, um, so thanks for having us in today. Um, So this strike was initially called for by prisoners actually in South Carolina at a prison called Lee Correctional after a really uh, dangerous uh, pattern of of internal violence at the prison. And they wanted to address a lot of the conditions they were dealing with on the inside that they felt was exacerbating the violence and despair and alienation in their facility. Um, uh, That was called for by a group called Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. Um, They have a really great Twitter uh, handle Mm -hmm. people can follow if they want to. Um, And then as they got in touch with outside supporters, uh, especially in the South, um, they, they, you know, obviously knew that a lot of the conditions they're dealing with are very similar all over the country. Um, There's some things that are kind of specific to facilities, but most things are pretty universal um, in the state and federal prison systems. Tell me what form the, the demonstration takes. Um, in terms of the prison strike. strike, Yeah. Yeah, So they're calling for prisoners to, if prisoners have jobs, to not work those jobs. Um, If prisoners don't have jobs, which a lot of prisoners don't, um, to carry out sit-ins or any kind of protest that can sort of disrupt the routine or control of the facility uh, as an exercise of prisoner power and prisoner unity. Um, In particular, prisoners on the inside, especially since the mid-70s, have dealt with a lot of problems of internal strife in terms between uh, folks of different race, different gang, different religious affiliation, and the way that prisons have been administered and managed since the mid-70s in particular exacerbates those divisions, and prison administrations rely on those divisions to manage prisons. Divide they, and conquer. Right. It's a, yeah, pretty much. Um, and that strategy was a response to the kinds of prison organizing, the last wave of prison organizing we saw in the 60s and 70s. And so a lot of this strike is – is about cr- causing prisoner unity, right? Trying to bring back prisoner unity, trying to bring peace between different organizations or religious groups or races and, and have a, a sort of unified front. And so part of it is a labor strike. If p- prisoners have jobs, the call is to not work. But also for prisoners who don't have jobs, I think we'll see things like uh, sit-ins and yards. We'll see um, any number of strategies that prisoners might use to, to basically challenge the control of the prison and and make their demands known. There was one demonstration at the Hyde facility, as we t- as we said, at the Hyde Correctional Institution here in North Carolina. And one of our producers uh, spoke with someone who participated in that demonstration. Here's part of that conversation with Todd Martin. The demonstration, it was it was unbelievable. Um, some of us knew it was coming. A majority did not. Um, but everybody that saw it, everybody was curious. They walked up. They asked what was going on, why the protesters were there, when people went around informing them what they were protesting and what we wanted and why we wanted it. 
everybody was supportive. Nobody was violent. That wasn't the point of what we're doing. We, we're not. We're not violent people, you know. We are human beings. Like, like I said, we can, we can function as a society just as anybody else. We don't have to resort to violence to get our points across. That was Todd Martin, an inmate at Hyde Correctional Institution, speaking with Dave Things producer by phone from the prison. John Roberts is with me, part of a coalition of people supporting striking inmates. Also talking to Eli Albiston, who is an attorney with Edelstein and Payne in Raleigh. Eli, what kind of legal rights do, do prisoners have for, for even creating demonstrations like this? Um, the legal rights of prisoners are pretty limited, so they theoretically have the same constitutional rights, um, right to free speech, um, right to not experience cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment as people on the outside, but they are limited by what the court calls uh, – the, the court says that a prison can regulate prisoners' behavior as long as it's related to a legitimate penological interest, um, which – most of the time, the prison puts forward as safety. Um, so a lot of things that folks on the outside and methods that people could use to demonstrate or to speak out are punished and not allowed in prisons, and there's not a lot of recourse in the courts there. So it remains to be seen whether or not there would be retribution for these demonstrations, right? Right. I, I would say, looking at past demonstrations in prisons, that it's likely, um, but there are lawyers across the country who will be watching the prison administration to see uh, if they're going to retaliate against these prison strike organizers, uh, and they are they are available for those prisoners should they need them. So talk about the conditions, Eli. I'll stick with you for a minute. Uh, the conditions that uh, the prisoners are protesting, particularly in North Carolina, what are the demands here? Uh, so what, there's a list of demands that uh, North Carolina prisoners have put out, and I think John can say where people can find that. Um, one of the things they're complaining about are the uh, disciplinary infraction fees. So if a prisoner is charged with a disciplinary infraction, which is very arbitrary, it could be something very minor, such as talking back to a guard. Um, it could even be self-harm. Uh, they have to pay $10 every time, which doesn't seem like a lot of money to someone outside prison. But when you're in prison and don't have access to money, um, it's it's huge. And when family members send in money to their uh, their loved ones, that money gets taken by the prison immediately. Um, one of the things that no, when you, are, let me just clarify that we gets taken, but is it held for the inmate or is it no? Taken it's used and, for that disciplinary infraction. It's a fee. I see. Uh, uh, but fine, I'm saying if there is no fee, does it get held in some kind of escrow? It's, is it, right. Is, yeah, they have a use, trust account. Yeah, oh, trust, mm -hmm. Okay, but but go ahead. Please continue. Um, so one of the other things that folks are asking for in North Carolina is to bring back a parole option um, or a way to reduce your sentence based on good behavior. Um, North Carolina abolished parole in 1994, so right now it's not available. It's available to DWI, uh, people serving DWI sentences, but as I understand it, it's not used very often there. Mm -hmm. um, well, John, let me ask you about some of the other conditions nationwide, too, mm -hmm. and, and, and what we're looking at here nationally in terms of what people are asking for change. Yeah, so some more of the demands in addition to what Eli's talking about. Um, parole has been a big thing, um, particularly in the context of parole nationally, not just in North Carolina. There's um, a, a racial basis or bias to how parole tends to be doled out. And if you look at statistics in terms of if the victim of a crime um, is white, the person is far less likely to get parole, especially if they're black or brown. Um, and so that specifically is one of the demands to be rectified in, in the list of 10 demands that the South Carolina prisoners put out sort of on behalf of the country. 
Um, but like Eli was saying, um, prisoners who were joining in in North Carolina actually put out their own call for a strike starting the same day as a sort of echo, if you will. And many of their demands are very similar, um, but uh, focus on some specific things in North Carolina. Um, in particular, the the pattern of mental health inmates or prisoners with, with mental health issues getting locked up in solitary for tremendously long periods of time is something that they wanted to draw attention to. Their first demand deals with that. Um, uh, the $10 infraction fee is a huge thing. Restoration of a lot of educational and rehabilitative programs is huge. In the context of these demands and in response to NCDPS's statement that you read out about North Carolina having a progressive prison system, I don't know what progressive prison system means. That sounds like some strange doublespeak, but I would just point out to listeners that prisoners would not be risking their bodies and their lives and their freedom all across the country if what NCDPS was saying was true. Well, retaliation right. is a real concern and a real right. threat, especially in a closed environment like that where your word against the institution is obviously diminished. We talked again to Todd Martin. Our producer spoke with Todd from the Hyde Correctional Facility and talked about just that very thing, the risk of retaliation. Well, the, the staff members have uh, have made it very clear that they do not agree with what we are doing. They are looking for a way to turn... Um, our desire to protest what's going on into a, a riot, which is not what it is. We, we don't want that. Anybody that even started to... You have 60 seconds remaining. ...started to get rowdy, you know, we calmed them down and explained, this is a protest, this is not a riot. But the prison officials, they don't feel the same way that we do. You know, it's their job to keep us here, keep us in order, and basically to keep us away from the communities with our mouths shut. Todd Martin, an inmate at the Hyde Correctional Institution, talking about retaliation, one of the people involved in the national prisoner strike. My guests now are activist John Roberts and attorney Eli Albiston. Uh, John, there's a historical precedent for this, too. Mm -hmm. Talk about some other demonstrations previously, uh, you know, in the past decades. Yeah. um, So two years ago, there was a national prison strike as well. And uh, that's that one also started around the same time of year. It, it began on September 9th, which of course is the 40 was the 45th uh, anniversary of the Attica Rebellion, um, which prisoners wanted to honor, and they're honoring again this year uh, by ending the strike on that day. The strike begins on August 21st, which is the anniversary of the assassination of George Jackson, who was a prison revolutionary in the 70s. Uh, it's also the beginning of the Nat Turner Rebellion. So that date was chosen very intentionally and in, in referencing a very long history of rebellion against both slavery and prison. Um, and so, yeah, two years ago, there was also a national strike. It was coordinated across at least 26 states um, in what, at least from my own research, I think is historic in, in all ways. I don't think there's ever been a coordinated prison protest that large in North America. Um, but, of course, the, the legacy of, of, of rebellion and organizing inside prison goes back as long as there's been prisons. And Eli, um, I, I yeah. want to get to some of the changes in the law that have made it more difficult for uh, for inmates to even bring bring suit. You talked about changes in the law, uh, making parole more difficult, having mm-hmm. to serve the minimum and sometimes some, some percentage of the maximum sentence. Uh, all of these changes in the law over the decades have made it more difficult for inmates to secure their rights in some ways. Absolutely. Uh, one of the demands in the strike is to get rid of the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which is a federal law that was passed in 1996. And the goal of it was to reduce prisoner litigation, to make it 
essentially make it more difficult for prisoners to file lawsuits, and that has worked. Um, one of the I could go on and on about it, but one of the major things that makes it more difficult is that before prisoners can file a federal lawsuit, they have to exhaust their administrative remedies, which means they have to file a grievance in the prisoners in the prison and take it through all of the steps. They have to follow the guidelines, their deadlines. Um, someone might and have you're working within the administration, right. so you're working within the walls of the prison to mm-hmm. make a complaint about what's happening at the prison. Yes. Um, and so, you, first of all, you have to decide you're going to do that. And now you're telling me it's a very complicated and drawn-out process. Right. Um, and you have to complain about the correct thing. If you end up filing a lawsuit about something else and if you're not phrased it in the right way, the lawsuit may be dismissed. Um, I would say within prisons, the grievance procedure is regarded among prisoners as a joke. Um, it's very rare that some someone will get an actual a response and uh, their problem resolved through the grievance procedure. One of the more disturbing things I found was the degree of racism in the United States. When I initially started doing the research, I was pretty shocked by how many people search for racist jokes. Uh, and most of that is for huh. jokes mocking African Americans. And it's searching great frequency, as frequently as searches for you know, Lakers or economists or migraine. How many times we can say n- Daring to be kicked out of bars for using racial slurs. And right now, this video is at the center of a deadly stabbing investigation on the North Shore. And Lisa, the suspect in that is white. The victim is African-American. Police yesterday said there was no evidence of a hate crime, but knew at 6 tonight. Channel 11's Courtney Brennan confirmed police are now looking at that video and other racially charged social media posts. Courtney. Yeah, David, so tonight we talked with people who knew the suspect, Joden Rocco, when he was a, excuse me, when he was a student at North Hills High School, and they say that then he was very outspoken and kind of in your face about his racist and hateful beliefs. We're playing a game. How many times we can say, nigga, to the bartender before we get kicked out. This Instagram video was sent to Channel 11 and is now being looked at by Pittsburgh police. It allegedly shows Joden Rocco describing what he calls a game in which he wants to know how many times he can say the N-word before getting kicked out of a bar. Channel 11 authenticated the video with police sources, and investigators are now trying to determine if it was made by Rocco just hours before he allegedly killed Dulane Cameron. Police say the two men got into a fight outside a row of popular bars on the North Shore early Sunday morning and that Rocco fatally stabbed Cameron. Several North Shore bar managers told us today they gave surveillance video to investigators who are now trying to piece together what happened before the stabbing. Channel 11 can also confirm tonight that police are investigating Rocco's lengthy social media history. In this Facebook post, Rocco shares a photo that says the war on white people. In this post, he allegedly wrote, what do blacks have to offer society? All they do is ruin Western civilizations. And in a third post, Rocco allegedly wrote, as soon as America becomes all one mixed race, this nation will turn into a third world expletive. Pittsburgh police say they're looking at all of this evidence and much more to zero in on a motive.
And so tonight we can tell you that Rocco is only charged with homicide. However, we are checking in with Pittsburgh police to see if any additional charges will now be filed in light of all this evidence that they are looking at. Reporting live outside of Pittsburgh police headquarters tonight, I'm Courtney Brennan for Channel 11 News. So let us speak about the motherland. President Trump last night told his Twitter followers that he's going to have the State Department look into attacks on white farmers in South Africa. South Africans are now accusing Trump of trying to stoke racial tensions in the country. South Africa has been grappling with a complicated debate on land reform. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. It began with a report by Tucker Carlson on Fox News. The president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, has begun, and you may have seen this in the press, seizing land from his own citizens without compensation because they are the wrong skin color. That is literally the definition of racism. Racism is what our elites say they dislike most. Donald Trump is a racist, they say, but they paid no attention to this at all. Trump was quick to pick up on this, writing on Twitter about the, quote, large-scale killing of farmers in South Africa and ordering his secretary of state to look into it. The South African government was taking none of it, accusing Trump of having a narrow perception of what was happening in the country and of stoking racial tensions. Many others were shocked by Trump's tweet, according to Anton Harbour, who teaches journalism at Witwatersrand University in Johannesburg. It's surprising that he should pick up on it in this way, in response to a Fox News report, which was just inaccurate, wrong, um, and very unfortunately so. Harbour is on the board of a fact-checking group that has looked into some of the myths in this debate over land reform in post-apartheid South Africa. A researcher at Africa Check, Kate Wilkinson, warns against provocative statements and misleading data. She says police reports show that 47 people, a figure that includes blacks and whites, were killed on farms in South Africa in the past year. We just cannot say whether people living on farms and small holdings in South Africa face a risk that is higher than the average South African. Here in the U.S., though, far-right groups have been warning about what they call a white genocide in South Africa and have even gathered thousands of signatures for an online petition to encourage President Trump to allow white South Africans to emigrate here. Professor Harbour says one reason for this is a group called AfriForum, which has made inroads with white nationalist groups here in the U.S., and now it seems with the White House. They're quite vocal, and they present themselves as a group that protects minority rights, um, but they largely seen as a group that protects white Afrikaans' rights. AfriForum welcomed President Trump's tweet, as did many right-wing activists. South Africa's foreign ministry, on the other hand, called in U.S. embassy officials to complain about it. At the State Department, spokesperson Heather Nauert confirmed that meeting. She also said that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has spoken to President Trump about South Africa's land reform debate. I should mention that the expropriation of land without compensation, our position is that that would risk sending South Africa down the wrong path. 
Uh, we continue to encourage a peaceful and transparent public debate about what we consider to be a very important issue, and the South Africans certainly do as well. Nowert couldn't say if there are actually any plans in South Africa to carry out such land seizures. She only said Pompeo would, in her words, focus on this. The latest flap comes as the president's wife plans a trip to Africa. No word yet on what countries Melania Trump will visit when she travels without her husband in October. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. I believe rape is a tool of the white supremacy system. It's a way of showing and dom- it's a way of showing power of dominating the victims. Uh, so it's it's really heartbreaking to even think back on what these poor black women who were just trying to bring food into the you know food and money into the home what they had to endure. Because for everyone that said no, there was probably one that felt compelled to say, you know, you know, that felt pressured to go along with it. Particularly in the South. In the South, you probably couldn't even refuse to do it. So, you know, this is the legacy that we're dealing with. And this legacy has tainted uh, our relationships with each other. The respect that black men have for black women, knowing that they couldn't protect them. The respect that black women have for black men, knowing that they couldn't protect them. So I think all of this kind of uh, legacy has really devastated the respect level between black men and black women. And that's why I wrote that book, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, to explain to the best of my ability why we're at each other's throats. And if we don't wise up and get it through our big, thick heads, that we are all we have. When filmmaker Nancy Bursky set out to tell the story of Reese Taylor, she couldn't have predicted that Oprah would take to the stage of the Golden Globes and make a public call for justice. In 1944, Reese Taylor was a young wife and a mother. She was just walking home from a church service. She'd attended in Abbeville, Alabama, when she was abducted by six armed white men, raped and left blindfolded by the side of the road. Until that speech earlier this year, the story of Reese Taylor was not well known, but a film that tells the story of that brutal assault and its aftermath was released last year. Nancy Bursky wrote, produced, and directed the documentary The Rape of Reese Taylor. And Nancy Bursky joins us now. Welcome back, Nancy. It's good to be here, Frank. Tell us more about the story of, of uh, Reese Taylor. Reese Taylor was a 24-year-old sharecropper, mother and daughter of a nine-month-old infant. Um, and she was walking home from church on a hot summer night in Abbeville, Alabama. A car circled her, came around, circled her again, and then finally grabbed her away from two other people she'd been walking with and told her she didn't get in the car, they were going to kill her. So she got in the car, they took her to a pecan grove, and they brutally raped her for four hours. Reese Taylor begged to be let go, said she would never say a word about this if they just let her go home to her baby. So they did. Reese Taylor immediately went to the sheriff and spoke up because she knew what they had done was wrong, and she had to stop it. That was extraordinary in 1944 in Alabama for a 24-year-old black woman, right? That's extremely rare. There were many women who were being raped during that period of time. Rape was not as visible then as lynching was. Lynching had stopped by the early 40s, but when lynching was, was being perpetrated People wanted the people who were be were doing the lynching wanted blacks to know what was going yeah. on. It was very very visible. It was a warning, um, but rapes were different. Rapes were under the under the radar, and women were told if they spoke up, they would uh, lose their lives and mm-hmm. their families were in jeopardy. 
You tell the story in the documentary, and you talk to the brother of Reese Taylor, Robert Corbett, who describes the night of the attack and what happened afterward. And shortly after that, Louis Corbett, the police showed up. Louis Corbett, who Reese worked for the Lear right next to her, he was a sheriff. He was supposed to have been out looking for her, but I'm not sure what he was doing very much looking. He just happened to come by Reese and my father on the street, picked him up and got him in the car and brought him back down to Three Point across the street from our house. Reese had promised these guys down there if they didn't kill her and let her go home to her child, she wouldn't tell anybody. As soon as she got back, she told everything that she could tell. That's the brother of Reese Taylor, Robert Corbett, describing the night of the attack. A clip from the movie The Rape of Reese Taylor, screening at the Carolina Theater in Durham on Monday and Tuesday evenings next week. You can find that information at our website, stateofthings.org. We're here with the film's director and producer, Nancy Bursky. So how was it, Investigator? What happened? They uh, they had a grand jury hearing soon after. Um, not to anybody's surprise, the boys were not indicted. Um, these boys were being they were being questioned by a grand jury made up of their their fathers and their uncles and their peers um, so they were let off um, but the family would not stop and they had contacted the NAACP in Montgomery Montgomery sent their investigator down to talk to Reese Taylor that investigator was Rosa Parks it's an incredible story what what was it about that family do you think and that situation that that made Reese Taylor think she could go forward and insist on justice you know we often ask ourselves this as we were making the movie I think that the strength of their faith had a lot to do with it I think the family itself the father Benny Corbett was an incredible individual and he felt that his daughter deserved justice. They all knew that there was nothing that Reese had done that deserved this. This There was no shame attached to it, as we often attach to rapes. Um, there was no shame for Reese Taylor. They knew that there was a history of this. It was a history that came down from plantation days, from slavery. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. It's double-edged on the one hand. Uh, to be conscious of this history is to say, maybe today's the day it stops. But more likely to understand that twas ever thus. It goes back to the, the time of slavery when men, con- white men controlled black bodies, particularly women, women's bodies, uh, and know that this is the law of the land down here, and then to move forward. You, there's a clip you talked with, uh, with Danielle McGuire, who is a film consultant, and talked about the realities of this case and, again, why, why there might be no indictment given the history and the context. So here we have a grand jury made up of local white men, farmers, business owners, sharecroppers, being asked to indict their sons, their neighbors, their brothers, you know, local boys who, for all intents and purposes, in their mind at least, were just trying to have a little fun and got carried away. They were never going to indict Reese Taylor's rapist. That's author Danielle McGuire in a clip from the film The Rape of Reese Taylor. The movie will screen at the Carolina Theater in Durham Monday and Tuesday evenings next week. Filmmaker Nancy Bursky will be there to introduce the film and do a Q&A. She's with me now. So you talked about the fact that, okay, no indictment, and then the family calls in the NAACP, and the NAACP takes the case. Uh, tell us more about that decision to take this case. And remember, 1944 we're talking about. Uh, you know, I think that Rosa Parks had a connection to this case herself. 
herself. We'll, we'll see in the film um, that Rosa Parks had gone through something very similar. Um, and she had been she was the investigator of these types of uh, abuses. This wasn't the only one that she was investigating. So they take this case and Rosa Parks, when she comes down to visit Reese Taylor, is physically thrown out of the house by the sheriff. He says, stay away. They don't want any fuss. They don't want to draw any attention to this at all. So Rosa Parks takes Reese Taylor and her husband and child to Montgomery, where they keep her there and they do they do interviews with her. They form this committee called the Committee for Equal Justice for Mrs. Reese Taylor. And they send hundreds of telegrams to the governor for further investigation and they just rally all these people around Reese Taylor's case. It becomes a cause celeb. It would be interesting to think about the kind of discussions that went on at the NAACP. We know they were exceptionally careful at this time, certainly even after the Brown decision, and that was that was half a decade later, um, or a decade later, um, when about which cases they would take. So apparently, they thought this was going to be a good case. It was, and and you know, Rosa Parks, even as acting as a secretary for the NAACP, was herself in danger because she had the lists of everybody who supported the NAACP. It was a very dangerous time for everybody. It was, and it also uh, shines a light, both both tells the story of Reese Taylor that had been pretty well muted until this time, again, as, as we say, until Oprah took to the stage, but your film had been already out, and we'll talk more about what led to the, the production of that film. But we know about Rosa Parks. Here she is in 1944, already very busy. And so uh, let's listen now to Yale professor Crystal Feimster, uh, Feimster, who talks about the legacy of Rosa Parks. People are introduced to Rosa Parks for the first time. She's Rosa, who didn't give up her seat on the bus. Um, they already imagine her as this elderly stateswoman, right, with her beautiful silver-gray hair. Um, but she was actually quite young. She had a long history of protests and grassroots organizing. She learned how to be an activist through her family and her family politics. Her grandfather, in particular, was a role model for her. He was someone who would not tolerate oppression and believed that his children and his children's children shouldn't have to submit to white supremacy. There it is, a clip from The Rape of Reese Taylor, screening at the Carolina Theater in Durham Monday and Tuesday next week. Nancy Bursky is the producer and director. She's going to be at the screenings next week for a live Q&A. She's with me on the state of things. I wonder if you were surprised at uh, Rosa Parks. I mean, we know, I think, people who have studied that movement understand that she was not a tired old lady on the back of a bus. She was somebody who had been trained at Highlander School and was ready ready for action. But to, to think of her this involved and uh, active this early uh, was a surprise I, for me. I, I, it was a surprise for me, too. I knew she was an activist, and I had read about her activism before. And um, I was also aware of what caused that activism to be suppressed, that she had become a symbol for the organizers of the Montgomery bus boycott. And the optics were such that they needed her to be quiet. She had offered to get up and speak after the first rally of the Montgomery bus boycott. And they basically said, no, you've done enough for us. You know, we just want people to see you. So uh, in a way, I wasn't surprised. But to know of her connection to physical abuse, sexual assault, that's what was a surprise to me. What was that? Tell us more about her personal Well, she, she had been attacked at one point, or I should say she had almost been attacked. She actually talks her attacker out of the, the rape. Um, she, she uses her incredible brain to convince him that this is the wrong thing to do. Uh, so she, she has a personal connection to this. 
Um, now, tell tell us what happens next. Now the NAACP is involved in this. What what happens next? Well, then they bring Reese Taylor up to Montgomery. They form this committee, um, and the committee rallies people around her, and they put enough pressure on Governor Sparks to form another investigation and another grand jury. Um, to no one's surprise, once again, these boys get off. I'd like to add something that Daniel McGuire said in that clip that, you know, these are these are the, the people that serve on these grand juries are peers of these boys. They know them. They're in the neighborhood. They're their relatives. But I'd also like to suggest that it's very possible, given how ubiquitous this culture was, this culture of rape, that some of these people on those grand juries may have committed the same acts themselves. Right. right. And and it goes back, again, it's the legacy of slavery and white supremacy. The idea memorialized all over this country, uh, memorialized that you have the right to control the bodies of certain people. That's correct. And so uh, that's how far back it goes. As you say, it's part of the culture. By 1944, had the fear begun to set in? Because we know that post-World War II, African-Americans came back ever more um, um, convinced that activism was the way to go and insisting on on their rights. It scared the daylights out of uh, whites in the South. And the reaction was becoming stronger and stronger. Had that set in by then in Alabama? Not in, not in Abbeville. Abbeville was still pretty – it was very, very segregated. And Robert Corbett and his sister Alma Daniels talks about how they knew how to behave. Um, and they just kept their heads down. Once the rape took place – and they all knew the rapists. You know, the rapists lived in the neighborhood. They, they would see them walking to and from. Um, Robert talks about how he – his father told him he couldn't play in the front yard anymore that he had to play in the backyard to be, to protect himself. So I think there was still a tremendous amount of fear on the part of the blacks, right. not on the part of the whites. What happened to Reese's family and Reese after they through all of this? Well, they, they had to be careful because Reese and her father had, had been very outspoken. Her father was prepared to take out a shotgun and shoot these, these boys, but he was reminded by his family and by others, that if he committed that crime, if he tried to get revenge, then he'd be strung up or he'd be imprisoned at least, and he wouldn't be around to protect his own family. You know, one of the things, the the offshoots of, of this kind of story is what happened to the men, not just what happened to the women. They couldn't protect their women and they couldn't protect their daughters the way they wanted to. So it was very emasculating. And and I think that one of the exciting things about the civil rights movement and the, and the Montgomery bus boycott that basically triggers that movement is the role that men finally begin mm-hmm. to play. But it's the women who are always behind the men. Well, and of course, that's a, that's another story for another time, a complicated gender dynamics that takes place through that portion of the civil rights movement, owing to some of these distortions built in by slavery and white supremacy. Exactly. But let's talk. And, and so and along these lines that you also talk with Reese's nephew, James Johnson. Let's hear what he has to say again about the context in which all of this is taking place. First of all, they did not regard black people as humans, first of all. This goes back to the plantation. We were animals, uh, monkeys. And so they felt that uh, we were really not human beings. So this attitude transcended from the plantation even to uh, even to the day, if you will, because there are some white males uh, you know, who still do not believe that we are human beings, that we are animals. And so therefore, um, uh, you know, so you kill an animal, you kill a, you know, you kill a dog. It's no different. By having the power to have sex with black women when they wanted to, they 
were in control. And that is Reese Taylor's nephew, James Johnson, from the film The Rape of Reese Taylor. It screens at the Carolina Theater in Durham Monday and Tuesday evenings next week. Filmmaker and director Nancy Bursky will be there for a Q&A. She's with me in the studio now. So how did you come to know this story? Well, I read Danielle McGuire's book, At the Dark End of the Street, and she covers not only Reese Taylor, but many women who begin the civil rights movement and right up through the movement and after the movement. But Reese Taylor's story just grabbed me. I, I did not know about her. More importantly, I didn't know about this ubiquitous number of rapes that were taking place during that time. I was very moved by Reese Taylor's courage to speak up. What happened to Reese Taylor? What was her life like after that? Obviously, still no, still no justice done, and she's got to live there. And she's got to live there. She moves down to Florida. She can she continues sharecropping in Florida. Um, her life is not a good life. It's not an easy life. Um, and she never does get the kind of justice that she felt she deserved. Finally, the state does give her an apology um, many years later, and it's after Danielle's Magu- Danielle McGuire's book is published, and there was more fuss made about her case. Mm. So they finally step up and give her an apology. Um, even that wasn't enough for her. And she knew we were making this movie, and she was very, she was very, very pleased that she would become visible in the way that she hadn't been visible during that time. And and her courage and her honesty is what enabled us as filmmakers to make her visible and other women like her. I wonder how things have evolved in Abbey, Alabama. When you went down there to make this film, how are the locals uh, treating you and the, the notion of this film? Uh, it was tense. It was very tense. Um, the fact that the two brothers speak to us, brothers of the rapists speak to us in, about what their, their brothers had done, um, sent a message to us that they didn't really consider what their brothers did was a serious crime. They trivialize it. It's boys will be boys. Mm. They had too much time on their hands. And so there's still a mindset with some of the people in Abbeville, of course not all of them, but with some of the people in Abbeville that they just want this to go away. Context of white supremacy. She didn't say some of the whites specifically, but some of the people in Abbeville. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 25th, 2018. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts observations questions counter racist suggestions the number 6417153640 the code 564943pound press star 61 if you would like to participate Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Got a question uh, from a listener this week. Question uh, I receive. Mm-hmm. Not on a regular basis, but it's not the fifth time that I've heard this. Lots of people listen to the archives. Way more people have always listened to the archives than tuning in live. 
Uh, some of the folks who listen to the archives uh, have questions about being able to tune in during the live broadcast. The way that you can access the live program, you can go to Black Talk Radio Network and click on the tab for the context of white supremacy. Shortcut to that, tinyearl.com forward slash cows radio. We'll take you right there. You can go to our page on TuneIn, uh, which I've tweeted on the cow, uh, cows Twitter page, Facebook page, all over. Uh, TuneIn.com. Uh, you can just do a search from there for context of white supremacy, or you can do just a regular online search, tune in context of white supremacy, and it should pop up. Those are two methods that you can listen live. You can, and it's also, tune in is also linked at Black Talk Radio Network. So if you go there, you can listen there, or you can click the link for tune in right there. That's two ways. You can call 641 715 Four zero, the code five six four nine four three pound. That's three ways that you can listen. You could use the Vope line, which I've talked about before. Uh, at least four different ways that you can listen. The easiest: call on the phone, Black Talk Radio Network, tune in. Those would be the easiest ways to access the live program. Same time every Saturday for this broadcast, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, you can check the schedule for the other broadcast times, but they are generally like 90% of the time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Next, uh, the book club. We finished Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon yesterday. Next Friday, or this coming Friday, rather, uh, we will be starting as mentioned in the audio segment, Pam the Great, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. We had two different uh, listeners who volunteered to read the text. Uh, one of them asked for help with the recording. I am not of much assistance because she has a PC and I have pretty much exclusive, exclusively been using a Mac for about the last decade. So I'm not a whole lot of help with regards to PC software for recording or much of anything else. Uh, so if folks have uh, any tips or recommendations for what I would think would be basic recording, you're just doing voice recording. It doesn't have to, you know, have a lot of uh, sound effects or music or anything else, just straightforward uh, voice recording uh, for a PC. If folks have any uh, tips, that would be much appreciated. Uh, we do have multiple people or at least two people who volunteer to narrate. So we can take turns uh, or however we need to get through the text. But that's the book that we should be starting this Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you would like to tune in live this Friday for the book club, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, the Kindle version of that book is available at amazon.com. You can go and get your copy and be all ready. And Pam made it super affordable. I think it's like less than $4, the Kindle version. So you can be good to go and ready to roll for Friday. Uh, I am contemplating whether or not I'm going to uh, get my hard copy of the text, which I believe is uh, signed by Pam, uh, or just let that one sit and just use a Kindle copy that I can, you know, take my highlights and all that good stuff. But either way, ready for Friday. Next, 
Uh, this broadcast, Context of White Supremacy, listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Visit my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, my PayPal button is in the top right corner. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested for almost a decade. I hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email and we can get you a physical mailing address. Again, tremendous thanks for everyone who has invested and helped us remain on the air for, as I said, nearly 10 years. Uh, You can also nab items from our wish list. Uh, It's linked at Amazon Gus T. Renegade. Also linked at the blog. Uh, Thanks again to everyone who has nabbed items down through the years. Lots of, I think that's how I got my copy of Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy Uh, that I'm looking at that right now uh, to reference one of the sound clips that we heard, but that's how I got that book and many other constructive items, the headphones that I'm using right now. Uh, thanks again to all the listeners. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Other things I wanted to make sure we touched on uh, before we get to some of the callers, the global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, not we didn't do it last week uh, because of all of the disruption that I had with yoga teacher training and what have you. That was last week was the third Sunday in August. And I am still kind of getting my bearings with uh, news of Pam's uh, passing. So I'm taking some mental health time. Self-care is important, uh, but we will be back with the global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, I especially am interested in the South Africa bit, as well as there are many folks around the world uh, who would like to get their uh, respects in for Pam the Great. So we will make sure that that happens pronto, just not tomorrow. Uh, Next, the segment that was talking about the closing of voting facilities in the area of Georgia. They voted on that yesterday, Friday, and they voted that decision down. So they are not going to close those facilities. Just update. The segment about in Seattle uh, and in King County or at this one branch specifically, they were saying we're at a couple branches, but in King County, uh, black non-white children being booted, kicked out, sorry, being kicked out of the public library and the high number of black people that are kicked out of the library. Again, the city of Seattle specifically, which is in King County, Washington State, The city of Seattle has less than 10% of black people or less than 10% of the population of Seattle is black people. For them to have that high a number of black people being kicked out of the library, and they have an incredible number of libraries. I was telling folks when they were, you know, thinking about coming here from my yoga class, go visit the the main uh, Seattle public library branch downtown. It's like 11 stories high. It is an incredible uh, marvel. I think the Gates uh, family uh, poured some of their uh, nickels into the creation of the structure. Uh, but inc- I think they have over 20 li- uh, libraries, public Seattle public libraries within the city. Uh, so to have black people being kicked out all the time and then 
100% of the children non-white. That segment not only uh, did, you know, I have to perk up and pay attention to that because I live here. Not only that, uh, and I have seen whites doing extraordinary things in the library. I mean, wow. In addition to that, it brought back memories. I recall what they talked about with the children being kicked out of the library. When we were in school, when I was in school, we would go to the library in the morning before class. Exactly what they said. Kicking out the black people or the black students, black children, kicking them out of the library uh, for just doing being children. Hit him with the laptop, plus, ex- like verbatim what they said. It would be myself and like one, two, three, maybe three other black males, sometimes four. But in the neighborhood of like three, four, five uh, black males who would all be at the same table. And I would say on a weekly basis, at least there would be at least three incidents of someone being removed from the live or, you know, you have been kicked out get out of here uh, type incidents per week, uh, if I recall, myself included. And it was exactly what they said in the clip. Hit somebody with the laptop cord. Uh, you, you know, threw a pencil at him. You gave him a dirty look. So you got to get out of here talking, anything. You laugh too loud, anything, just normal child things. Not you were plotting to steal a bomb or, you know, anything. You tried to rape a white girl. Simple, childish things. Uh, next, the segment about Reese Taylor. So many things uh, came to mind uh, in that segment. If we have any listeners in the South Carolina area, excuse me, North Carolina area where it's going to be screening at this coming week, uh, you should go visit. Uh, take if you have offspring, take them. Great opportunity. You can be prepared to ask questions. Great opportunity to learn and practice counter racism go check out the film or if you're you know anywhere else and you know you do some researching online and see that this film is going to be screened someplace go view it and ask questions see if they're going to do a Q&A but from that segment when they talked about how Oprah Winfrey victim of white supremacy brought a lot of attention to Reese Taylor with her uh, speech that she did earlier this year I think at the time that she gave that speech that was in January when we were not on the air the flood catastrophe for Gusty personally. I was taking yoga at that time as I have been the entire year. I remember white female suspected race soldier instructors talking about that speech and talking about that speech. They didn't say anything about Reese Taylor. Never, not once. But they kept talking about it and talking. Oprah showed us. Get out there and do your tr- Man, You talk about being irritated. I hadn't thought about that in a good eight months, but I remember that. I don't know if I had said anything about that uh, to Cal's listeners because we were not on the air at the time. But I have talked about being annoyed uh, with uh, suspected racist instructors uh, proselytizing and talking about, you know, all these things that have nothing to do with the yoga postures. Let's just get back to what we're doing. I did not come to hear you talk about uh, Oprah Winfrey or anything else. Continuing with that segment, uh, which really bothered me, that was on uh, North Carolina Public Radio, bothered me for many reasons with Nancy Bursky, the suspected racist white female uh, filmmaker, uh, on the Reese Taylor, uh, it's the Reese Taylor rape. For Cal's listeners, if that was your first time hearing about that, uh, this rape, this one rape, 
You can go back in the archives. Danielle McGuire was a guest on the cows in September of 2011. Pam the Great called in to that program. We asked Danielle McGuire if she was engaged in any sort of tragic arrangement, sexual activity with a non-white person at any time. Uh, you can go back and listen. And in fact, uh, Dr. Welsing came on the program a few days after in 2011, September. Danielle McGuire came on the program and I mentioned that book before asking a question. And Dr. Welsing interrupted me to say, oh, that's a really important book. You all should definitely read it. Very important. It sounded as if she was familiar with it and had read it herself. Uh, but we had already had her on the program at that point. You should go check it out. Should be in the archives. Uh, we talked about that book specifically and the Reese Taylor situation. Uh, when they talked about Rosa Parks in that segment, I've said before, I think we had a white man on the program in 2016, suspected racist. And he was talking about a black female in Canada who refused to get out of her uh, seat in a movie theater, uh, racism, white supremacy. And he said that she was the Rosa Parks of Canada. And in fact, she was even better than Rosa Parks because she did this 10 years before Rosa Parks refused to get out of her seat in Alabama, 1955. And I challenged this suspected racist uh, really, that right there might be an act of racism in talking that way about her and saying that is absurd and it is totally historically inaccurate. Rosa Parks' body of work in terms of what she did to work against racism, white supremacy spans decades. Uh, she was doing things for years before she got to that moment on the bus. And in my view, whites do that sort of thing regularly to sanitize, remove aspects from a victim of racism, white supremacy, especially those once they're deceased, to just eliminate things when they talk about their life and times and what they did, especially things they did to work against racism. They'll just eliminate and leave what they want you to know and take out a lot of the elements that they do not want you to know. And I read on the program uh, from Jean, the uh, Jean Theo Harris, I believe that's the suspected racist. She wrote one of the biographies on Rosa Parks, talks about how she sat out on the porch with her grandfather with his rifle, hoping that she would get an opportunity to see him kill a Klansman uh, and that how she, her husband and other black people that she was around uh, were all about black self-defense and it was nothing for them to have a table full of guns, that that's the environment that she grew up in, that they've just done a wonderful job distorting the legacy of uh, Rosa Parks. And particularly in that segment, this white woman, Nancy Bursky, where she says that uh, it was black males who made Rosa Parks a symbol, who just kind of uh, said, oh, you did enough. We don't need you to do anything. We don't need you to say anything. Just sit quietly and, and we'll, you know, do all the talking from here as though that old black male privilege is responsible for us not knowing about Rosa Parks. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I thought that was uh, likely a major and deliberate act of white supremacy. Uh, whites are most to blame for why we do not know about what Rosa Parks did and Rosa Parks was never suppressed by anybody. She was active up until the time of her death in working against racism, white supremacy in a variety of ways. The late Julian Bond uh, told us in a class that she uh, chastised him for taking the train because she was protesting against them for their uh, low wages, particularly against non-white black workers. Uh, at any rate, that's a, uh, also within the same segment with a white woman, Nancy Bursky, where she said that 
black males finally began to step up in protecting black females or challenging them being raped. That is totally false. That is why I was looking uh, for Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy because he has an anecdote in his very book, which has a lot of uh, different stories about him bragging about and uh, championing the lynching and killing of black people. But there is an incident in that book where a group of black people got together and lynched a white man who was accused of sexually molesting a black girl. There is a long history uh, of black people rallying and doing what they can from a very weak position uh, to try as best they can to defend one another and particularly uh, rapes happening against any and all black people. But there are lots uh, of those stories uh, that we've read. Uh, I think I have to go back uh, in the archives because there uh, many of them uh, are coming to mind of blacks retaliating specifically about that incident. But it's in if anybody has been Tillman's reconstruction uh, and the reconstruction of white supremacy, if you read the study session, you can go back and look and see if you have that portion highlighted. If I had my book, it is highlighted and I would be reading it specifically to you right now. Uh, the last thing I'll say about that segment, she said it wasn't until she read Daniel McGuire's book at the dark end of the street that she found out about this whole legacy of, of rapes and what have you and Reese Taylor. That is typical, the tackiness of racism, white supremacy, where you have a white woman who is either lying or is not very informed at all about this subject matter. And you go and read this one book and then you become the expert uh, to write, do this documentary uh, on Reese Taylor. Now you become the go to person to talk to about Reese Taylor and her life and times, access to the family and everything. It's just like, wow, you have people like Pam the Great years of research this is not news to her uh, about black people males and females being subjected to sexual terrorism they are not thought of as experts at all in fact daniel mcguire another white woman you have all exclusively whites being mentioned in this story who become the experts uh and narrators to what happened to reese taylor or you can just insert the black person's name reese taylor rosa parks insert name i'll stop there for the moment We'll get to the folks who dialed in 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. For this program exclusively, if we could not use metaphors, uh, that would be much appreciated. in that very segment uh, on Reese Taylor, the host Frank Stacio, he said the black World War II veterans like Jackie Robinson, they came back and scared the daylights out of whites in the South. I don't know what that means, particularly in a system of white supremacy. I've never seen whites with the daylights scared out of them by Negras. At any rate, if we could not use metaphors, make an effort to be explicit about what it is that we want to say. Race soldiers, like the suspect Frank Stacio, regularly employ metaphors, analogies, similes. In the practice of deception, they will insist that two separate entities are identical, equivalent. Frequently, that is not the case at all. Uh, That is the practice of a master deceiver, racist. Victims of white supremacy, such as Gus T, we've been exposed to this behavior for a long time. And many of us, we are still learning. 
Sometimes we don't have logic for specific concepts or subjects. So we will substitute, use a metaphor in the hopes that that conveys our thoughts. Often it does not. It just creates more confusion. If we could be direct, explicit about what it is that we want to say, that would be appreciated. I will prompt about the metaphors. Much obliged. Uh, again, if you could take about five minutes to share your commentary, that would be great. Make sure everyone gets at least one chance to speak. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could please use your mute button. Makes it so that we don't have to fight over a lot of unnecessary distortion and noise. Uh, just use your mute and then you can unmute yourself. You need to ask another question or get another thought in. With that, we will get to the first few folks who dialed in. Uh, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Uh, proceed. Captain Hurt. Greetings, Thomas in New York. Greetings, Gus. Um, greetings to all the callers. Um, start off the commentary this week on Randolph County. Um, voter suppression. Um, Georgia, um, the state with the most people being classified as black today, um, New York and Florida are tied at the second spot with 3 million black people, and Georgia has about 3.5 million black people uh, or people being classified as black. So therefore, you know, they have a significant amount. Uh, if my, my theory is, um, you know, voting will help us change the system um, or eradicate the system of white supremacy that white people wouldn't let us do it, um, Ben Tillman. But, um, you know, obviously there has to be a reason why they're trying to suppress the vote there. So I'm going to look into that. Um, the Oak Park, um, they said that the high school, the kids, the children were coming in on a third grade chief, um, reading level to high school. Um, you know, the system of white supremacy needs to be replaced or eradicated immediately. Um, and we need to do better to make sure that our children are reading and not spending all their time being entertained. Um, that that falls on the, um, the parents as well. But that is a statistic that's been around. I remember when I was younger, the big number was they were on a fifth grade reading level. It doesn't seem like they're getting any better. Uh, at teaching, our, attempting to miseducate our children. So we need to do some stuff at home to make sure they're on the right path. Seattle, a city with a measly 7.9% of the population of people being classified as black. Uh, in a vast library system, thus uh, 35 libraries I saw listed um, in the city of Seattle, just in the city. Um, that's four more than the entire county of Fulton County in Georgia. Um, Memphis, the city with the same population almost as Seattle, only has 19 public libraries, and I named those two places because they have a huge black population, um, just to show the disparity. All 52 children kicked out of the library were children who are classified as black. That, to me, is a statistic that it almost sounds like um, when you look at a real rural state like, you know, New Hampshire or somewhere, and you got 60, 70% of the 
people in jail as black, and they only got three percent. It's it's just crazy. Um, man, I remember Gus, and I'm a victim, and I could be wrong. Either mentioning or playing a clip that indicated that the Seattle libraries were gonna let heroin addicts, I mean, white dope fiend junkies, use the libraries as safe zones. Do you remember that? It sounds reasonable. Uh, I would have to look really quick, but it's, it sounds very reasonable, something like that being in Seattle. Yeah, I think I remember that um, coming up on the show, or maybe someone you had come on and say that. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say, um, and I wanted to commend everyone for the respectful tribute to Pam. Um, everyone did a great job with the tribute. To, for the counter-racist author, um, Pam Harris. Um, I wanted to contrast that to the tribute to the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, which was tacky, trifling, terroristic, terrible, trashy. Um, white terrorist Madonna. And um, I blame Sumner Redstone on the National Amusements. That's Columbia Broadcasting Services, CBS, and Viacom that owns MTV, VH1, and BET um, for allowing such a horrible tribute to take place for that legend. Um, Madonna mentioned in a crack house, her being in an armed robbery. Also a mention of her being a little white girl who sung a Reefer song so good. You know, um, You know, I just think that that was terrible. And I think that it's a conspiracy behind all of these um, black artists not having a will or trust left behind when they die. Um, and for Aretha Franklin, who I know her daddy was a minister, so she knows what a trust is. It, I find it very odd that her children are filing papers saying that there was nothing left behind um, to indicate what, what she wanted done with her um, $80 million, they're saying. Um, my very last thing, and this is my tribute to a man who was a racist, who fought to preserve and expand the system of white supremacy, the son of an admiral who led an attack against victims of white supremacy that the French named Vietnam, um, when a racist shouted out that Obama was a nigger and a terrorist, he did jump to his defense. However, he spent almost 40 years in Congress there for every bill that has affected us as a people. Um, Senator John McCain, I hope he rests in piss. And I didn't use that as a metaphor, Gus. Thank you. Could have been John McCain instead of Obama. Anyway, uh, I thought in the Seattle clip, I thought they said that the 52 were non-white. I thought uh, I didn't think they said it was 50, that they were exclusively all of the children were black. I thought they said some of them were, uh, quote unquote, Latino or something, uh, something non-white, non-black. Uh, but I'll I know there was definitely all non-white children uh, who got. I keep wanting to say kicked, uh, removed uh, from the library. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, that we've not heard from proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, um, I'm a first-time caller, long-time listener. Um, 
I believe I sent you an email, Gus, um, giving a little description about myself. Um, where do I start? Um, I guess first I'd like to say uh, thank you to Pamela um, Evan Harris. Evans Harris, I apologize. Um, I own three of her books, The Interracial Con Game, The Beauty Con Game, and um, Trojan Horse. Um, and uh, I'm going to purchase the Black Levels Revolutionary Act. Um, um, about the uh, the clips, um, you know, I'm calling out of a California, and um, uh, it's kind of difficult. Um, yeah, hopefully that's better. And for myself, um, I know I'm all over the place, but um. One of the clips about um, uh, the school system and the, uh, I guess, the reading literacy for the uh, children graduating or kids in school. Um, I myself um, never learned how to read until the eighth grade. And um, up until then, that was um, very uh, uh, frustrating and, you know, um, intimidating for me um, so I can understand um, that the system is um, constantly you know it's worldwide it's global and it's uh, attacking us on every front I understand that um, uh, um, well I, I guess that will be it for me right now but I may uh, comment a little bit later uh, thank you. Much obliged. First time caller. Glad you're able to join us. Black love is a revolutionary act. Pam the Great. Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be here? Yes, sir. <sighs> Greetings to... <clears throat> Greetings to the host and the callers. This is Gio calling from Chicago, Illinois. Um, rest in peace to Pam Evans Harris. Um, my condolences to a retired firefighter, him and his mom, and um, the clips. Wow, interesting. Uh, Oak Park. <laughs> Um, a formal, formal, a formal um, known sundown town. Um, read that in the book of uh, sundown towns recently, and um, uh, by listening to this clip, it was uh, uh, it was a lot of acts of uh, racism, a lot of laughter with the interviewee. It seemed like he was actually taking the whole thing as a joke, and. Um, uh, white, white supremacy, racism is, is not a joke. It's terrorism. Um, the AP honors <clears throat> classes that the students were taking um, 
from from also from the book and a little research, I read um, that they use that as a tool for um, a lot of a lot of white students use that as a tool in uh, like suburbs in in America, um, especially um, for a rule. It's called uncapped GPA, meaning like uh, you will be able to. Uh, like your your uh your your grade point average will um will be higher than than a four point like some like some will have like maybe four point three four point four and that kind of gives you uh, a boost over other students to um get into uh colleges um it helps you more um so they actually push um uh a p honor um classes for um, students um, in the suburbs and, and predominantly white. Um, uh, also, Percy LeVon Julian, who was um, a known chemist, graduated from um, Harvard, and um, also uh, he was, uh, he synthesized uh, cortisone, um, um, also hormone um, medicine, and um, in 1950 he moved actually to Oak Park, and he received a lot of death threats, and uh, people also tried to uh, burn his uh, mansion, and uh, he had to have 24-hour uh, security uh, eventually there. So um, I, I don't think, I think um, the the actual person that's doing the um, the documentary, the 10-part series, I, I think he's well aware of that. So for him to say liberal, <laughs> that word, um, I think that was an act of racism. Um, also, uh, I think, uh, I believe in Seattle, I think the Seattle Library, I believe, Gus, they said it was 100% black uh, children that were being kicked out from what I heard. But um, I might be I might be wrong. Um, the prisons, uh, the actual uh, the the strike, um, being fined in prison. Wow, that that was something um, real bizarre, but um, expected. Uh, also, uh, the interview with uh, with uh, uh, I forgot. The woman's name, um, based on uh, the the rape the rape victim um, in Alabama, Reese Taylor. Um, Reese Taylor. Um, yes, uh, that was. Uh, <laughs> uh, I believe she was aware of what was going on at the time because also um, from from um, the book Barracoon, uh, I did a little research with uh, Ruby McCullen and I ended up watching the documentary. And that happened, I think, in 1952, where where that whole incident happened, where she killed um, uh, the uh, Dr. Adams in in his office, and that had something to do also with rape. So, and and she also lived in Florida in, in Jacksonville. So, um, which Reese Taylor moved to uh, Florida. So, I think I think that she was aware of that. So, I I believe they were practicing also racism on that. And, um, what documentary did you watch? Uh, uh, Ruby, uh, the the documentary of Ruby McCullen. Oh, okay, that's um, great. What yes, was, is that yeah, like on Netflix or uh, Amazon? It okay. was. Uh, it came out in two thousand fourteen. 
Um, very, very, a very great documentary. Um, very, and they talked to her son and uh, also um, other people around the community. And <laughs> oh, wow, those people definitely was practicing racism um, throughout that whole uh, documentary and film. Um, and uh, that probably would be my five minutes, and uh, I'll meet my line. Thank you. Awesome book club, the book club, black. Love is a revolutionary act. That's what's coming up. But lots of interesting things happen uh, at the book club. I am going to the library Monday, incidentally, to get those articles that Zora Neale Hurston wrote about uh, Ruby McCollum. I'm uh, very eager about my library trip. Uh, hopefully I will not get kicked out. Oh, I looked at the uh, article. It is in all capital letters, only children of color. It does not say black. Only children of color, not all of the children that were kicked out of the library in Seattle were black. And they even have <clears throat> a picture of the escalator. Like if you go to the, the the main Seattle library, the one that's downtown, that's like 11 stories. Uh, they have these really opulent, uh, funky colored uh, escalators uh, that can take you from like the second to like the fourth floor. And they've got some of the pictures of those, I guess, you know spend too long loitering on those that'll get you kicked out of the library too if you're non-white especially a child other folks that we've not heard from at all if you have a hand up line should be open proceed can i be heard yes sir how you doing this is uh victim out of new jersey um first um, i just want to say rest in power to pam uh i i, I must say that um I, I wasn't aware of her passing. Um, Mr. Fox posted something on uh, Instagram, I mean, on YouTube. So I seen the picture and I seen her name and I didn't take time to click on. Um, so Friday when I was on my way, when I was at work, I, uh, I just had to go back in the archives and uh, I listened to... Uh, Black love is a re revolutionary uh, act, if, if, I'm, if I'm pronouncing it right. And um, I must say that as I was searching searching down the archives, um, I mean, for some reason, I, I just, I mean, tears just started, tears just started coming. I, I, I mean, because, I mean, Pam was just, man, I mean, she was somebody that, I would often hope I was I was just anticipating on hearing her again. She was one. I mean, when I go through the archive, she was just amazing. She was one of my favorites, and how she would uh, um, articulate her perspective of racism, white supremacy, but also at the same time, she would also convey her vulnerability, her shortcomings, how she slips up and she's still learning and some of the lessons that she's learned and, you know, just let us know that even though we look at her as a scholar, her commentary was also human and that's what just made her amazing and she will be missed dearly. Um, so, Gus, I just wanted to say to you, being though that I'm somebody who basically came onto the cows 
a year or two ago that you are reaching people. You know, even you, you definitely are reaching people. I mean, just for somebody to just be a newcomer on to the cows and to feel so deeply for the past and the past, that speaks value. Um, I wanted to speak about Rosa Parks and the uh, rape victim, um, Reese Teller. I think that the whole narrative of Rosa Parks is just a clear example of racism, white supremacy, because my introduction to Rosa Parks was a woman who was tired that didn't want to give her seat up not knowing that this woman has been active even before that in the fight to uh in the fight of our uh, racism white supremacy speaks volumes um your commentary to let us know that because the first thing that people who that just want to basically latch on to some reason to hold on to um to not have black self-respect to paint the narrative to say, well, this woman was raped and where were the men, you know, to basically frame that, you know, her father did pick up a shotgun. But during those times, you know what I mean, he could have easily went fist to cuff and, you know, suck out vengeance. But being though that we're, we're under this system and the judicial system is against us, that would have just basically added more trauma to their family. And so when I hear that story, you know, that's, so it, 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 it's, it's refreshing just to know that, no, the men in the community didn't sit back. The men had to basically be logic, just like how, uh, Nelly Fuller talks about how you talk about God in my conversations at the end of every conversation I think to myself is what did did what what I said was what I said logical or as what I is what I'm doing in life logical and at that time that was logical for them to go that route so just to know that there's a deeper story behind Rosa Parks. And the story that we got from when I was a young child reading about Rosa Parks, that is evidence that the system of white supremacy is still alive and kicking. But, and that's also reasons enough for us to fight and for us to support programs like the cows. And um, that's all I got to say. Thank you for the kind words on Pam. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Red Nevada. Hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you for allowing me to share. Um, you know, write poorly, but, you know, moving forward. Uh, the There was one thing, actually, I wanted to include um, last week that I, I should have actually um, been checking more than one source and that's actually teaching me even when I'm doing my like research and stuff about the um, opioid quote-unquote opioid epidemic um, to check different sources because last week I read 
an article from uh, the Las Vegas Review about how Nebraska was supposed to be the first state to start uh, using um, fentanyl to kill their white criminals, but that was actually a lie. And it was funny because Las Vegas blamed, or not Las, well, basically Las Vegas blamed Nebraska. But when I looked up an article in the Washington Post, they said it was actually Nevada who was the first to um, introduce uh, that idea or what have you to use fentanyl to kill, um, to, you know, uh, as opposed to put people to death. So um, definitely just a reminder, maybe, you know, not just to myself, maybe even all of us, like, you know, definitely um, even with these reputable sources to check, you know, have sometimes white people, other white people will tell on themselves. The other thing, um, when Thomas from New York, when he brought up the uh, tacky, trashy, terroristic tribute uh, to Aretha Franklin, I Googled Aretha Franklin, and I found something else that was tacky, trashy, and terroristic. When I just Googled her name, um, some of the first, the first article, first I Googled Aretha Franklin tribute, and um, one of the first things that pops up is PETA asks Aretha Franklin's niece for the Queen of Souls exclusive fur collection. So this white racist um, woman, Tracy, uh, she's the executive of her, um, I just had her last name pulled up, but she's the executive president of PETA, uh, the Animal Rights Association. Um, she said, or she wrote an open letter. Mind you, this is this just happened eight hours, or at least Newsweek reported it eight hours ago. And then I checked with uh, CBS, which when you just Google Aretha Franklin, um, CBS article comes up and it talks about how she should donate the daughter, the sorry, the niece should donate her for a collection to, um, to, to them to, so they can basically then uh, donate it to other, other organizations or whatever. And then they use the term. It said that it would solidify Aretha Franklin, basically in their eyes as, um, the angel for animals and to help increase her social responsibility or her social, I'm sorry, social activism to animals. So just completely just disgusting behavior, but expected behavior by these white terrorists um, to, to want to make sure that they get a hand or they, I'm sorry, that they um, tell other to tell victims what, uh, what should happen to another victim's property. Uh, to the segments, um, I thought that the segment on um, voting definitely interesting. It made me think about the article that I read last week about how you know someone's always trying to blame another quote unquote non-white group um, or assign a non-white person to blame another non-white group for why someone didn't vote. I know in the, the segment it said such and such or Republicans or whatever won because black people didn't vote. And uh, in the article that I wrote, I guess, you know, Nevada doesn't have like a pretty large uh, black population. So um, black people can't really be the blame if, if someone else is get, gets into office that the majority of the white people or whatever don't like. Um, and then I, I couldn't it, it seemed interesting that racists, they would want to close down um, different voting areas that weren't in compliance with the American with, uh, with uh, Disabilities um, Act when it, that would make that would mean that they would be even more out of compliance if the people who are disabled don't even have a place to go to or anywhere close and it made me think about when um, i was back in ohio and voting during the 2016 election like during smaller elections i could go there was a polling area that was less than five minutes away from me before the presidential election it was about 30 minutes away and about 15 miles away from me um 
And I did look up the article and uh, from the South Seattle Emerald, and they had a couple other articles about racism as well. And it does say in the article, it's the third uh, paragraph down, it says that every one of the 52 kids under 16 were excluded from uh, library branches at least once this year, were either black, which they have 43 in parentheses, or Hispanic, uh, and nine in parentheses. But another thing was that above it, in the second paragraph, it talks about um, of, of all, it says of the 764 exclusions that were included with the patrons um, race, it said like, you know, the 33% were black and then 7%, but then the 55% were white. And I think that it's, I think that like these type of articles, I think they're a clever way for the quote unquote liberal racist to kind of they'll act as if they're giving this information out as a means to help other, to, you know, to help black people and show, you know, this is disproportionate um, treatment. And they go into detail in the article about, you know, just like they said, some kids slap somebody else or spat it or sat on someone. They said a girl sat on someone, but why not also include the white, um, the white adult racist? What did they do? The 55%, what did they do? And I think even including a sentence like, okay, well, most of them, they were opioid addicts. So we had to kick them out because they were trying to shoot up in the bathroom, that type of thing. To, I feel like that should be also included as well. But of course, you know, this person, I'm sure, was practicing racism. Um, the other thing was, I guess the last thing um, with the Philadelphia segment about the, the racist um, being um, stabbing the black stabbing the victim uh the black male and how i'm starting to kind of understand and because of the cows you can understand that you know they these races they will actually um you know they'll automatically say there's no um, racism involved when i know someone had mentioned not that long ago with cleveland um, there was this guy in cleveland ohio who they said he was planning on doing something. And that was because I think with some posts or something on social media, but when you have a white person actually doing something that was, um, that's actually, you know, they can never, they don't, they don't, they didn't bother to check the Facebook or they didn't bother to check the social media. And I'm sorry, one last thing. I'm actually um, got somewhat interrogated um, by a possible race soldier while I was at my residence today. And it really made me think about making sure to have questions prepared because again, you know, Bang, they were bang, he was banging on my door and um, I was just really surprised and just really in, didn't never identified himself for anything and just really feeling like and at this point you know there's really nowhere safe so um, thank you for allowing me to share and I'll meet my line wow that's at your residence definitely even there be prepared nowhere safe in the system other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up line, well, at least the first few folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Uh, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, Imhan DC. Yes, sir. Greetings to you. Greetings to you, the host, the callers, and the listeners. I was going to speak on South Africa and one of the things that's going on there that when I'm listening to these different YouTube videos is that the white people say that the current black people that are in South Africa are not the indigenous population of South Africa 
Uh, they also say that about the black people here in America, that we're not the indigenous people of this place. But I, I think that's uh, one of their tactics, um, just the confusion, whether whatever is true, it's just all the confusing um, information. And, and then also, I wanted to speak about or just say we have to continue to address religion, all of them. Uh, every All of them need to be addressed, uh, and we need to address that before uh, I think uh, many things can uh, be solved uh, concerning white people. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, or at least the first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, I think during the segment about the uh, racist white terrorists who committed the act of rape, her name misses me right now. Reese Taylor. Reese Taylor. Yes, Reese Taylor. Uh, I keep seeing the same kind of reaction to black people when they're terrorized by white people. And it is always, uh, wow, they took that with dignity. Or, oh, they took so much. We should respect them for taking uh, so much pain. And I find this kind of uh, reaction to be quite uh, disgusting. And it's, it could be easily used to confuse a lot of non-white people who believe that uh, reactions like this mirror some sort of uh, progression when really it's the opposite. It's just them salivating at, at Black people's anguish. Uh, as far as uh, South Africa, I feel like it's, I feel like it means something uh, globally uh, as far as representing uh, Black people having a chance to really make a grand notion to uh, defend ourselves. Uh, even though there's a huge population difference, uh, I do feel as if once, if once or if those white farmers are removed, that I, I feel like South Africa will be treated like Haiti and they will then blame it on the non-white people and say that uh, black people aren't capable of running a society because we have low IQs. And I just don't, I, I think that it would just be them uh, blocking black people from any kind of progression or trying to be self-sufficient. Uh, that's all I have to say, Gus, and uh, thank you. Much obliged. Uh, the number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Other folks we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed.
Greetings, Ivy. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers on the line. Some, excuse me, pull up my notes. Um, I want to say um, shout out to Thomas in New York for you know his commentary on the use of the term black. I understand exactly where he's coming from, and I've you know felt that way um, before as well with the. Uh, definitions that are assigned to it, but what I will say is that the definitions, the the negative definitions that are, okay, I'll put it this way. Many of the definitions that are assigned to white and black are false and illogical. Like black, one definition is evil. For white, a definition is pure. Well, those are colors. Colors can't be evil or pure. Only people can be that way. So I just put that there um, just for, you know, their own, excuse me, agenda. And so I don't think that um, that we should just continue using those terms for those reasons. Um, one definition for black that is actually um, accurate is dominant, um, like uh, Dr. Wilson used to say. And um, also the term itself, I think it's actually a an accurate an accurate term um, to describe us because of what it represents. It represents the people that we come from um, most immediately. Um, darker-skinned people, and I know people who look black. Um, and in my view, Tay Diggs and um, Morris Chestnut, just to give examples, I think, to me, they look black when they don't have on the makeup or skin lightening cream or lights or whatever it is that they're doing, and I don't mean the actors are doing, but what the white people are doing to lighten them up. When they don't have that, to me, they look black, and I have friends who are darker than that. So I think it's a, um, I think it's an accurate term, um, and I think it also I agree with Mr. Fuller that we shouldn't discontinue using the, the terms black and white because they speak to the problem, and because we don't have a problem with Euro Europeans terrorizing Africans, we have a problem with people who classify themselves as white terrorizing people they classify as black and non-white. Um, and as far as I think someone brought up. I guess this might have been last week. Um, it was not too long ago on a compensatory colon uh, brought up, you know, how should we classify ourselves if we get rid of that? Well, I think that um, we definitely need to replace the, the, the system of, of white supremacy with justice for so many reasons. But I will say that for for now, if we start using different terms to classify ourselves, because the system still exists, what white people will do is they will go and they will they will assign negative definitions and make up false and illogical definitions to those terms as well. So I don't think that that will serve us to try to change terms or anything like that. But we definitely um, need to replace the system. And I think that once we do, that we just shouldn't classify ourselves by our colors at all. Because why would we classify ourselves by what we look like? That's not, to me, a, a logical way to classify ourselves. Like, you're going to say that you are something just because of what you look like? No, nah, the reason that that was made up, of course, was to mistreat people. And um, that's all I'll say uh, for the moment. Um, and I'll, I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Indeed, Ivy. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed. Heard. 
Uh, greetings, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I uh, had to take a few notes on the audio segment. The first one was, I think it was the Chicago segment about the, I guess what they call segregation in the schools. And the white man, I think that's what it was, was saying that his two children were taking classes. And in one class, the discussions on race or racism were different, but he never really expounded on uh, how they were different. So I'm guessing maybe that was his daughter that was taking the, what they call the more uh, so-called advanced curriculum classes those conversations I'm under the assumption were more exclusively white classes, those environments, the discussions on racism or race were different than the ones that they said were more integrated. I think that was where his son was taking courses. Uh, I just wish he would have uh, expounded more on that in the the segment about the uh, the library and the non-white children being uh, told to exit the building. Um, I did hear that too. That it was mainly non-white, and I think from I think the lady was saying that they were under 16. I guess maybe under the age of 16, maybe. Um, and the lady was saying, "Hey, well, we have to." We have to look at implicit bias. That's the that's the problem. So I don't know why this term continues to keep coming up. And I noticed the term progression was also used quite a bit. Uh, and the the last one I wanted to make a comment on was the prison workers. Uh, I think they were going on strike. That's the term they kept using. And now one thing when it came to the terms. The, the the male person, he was talking about a term called progressive prison system, and he said it was a, a it was a kind of double speak, and he never he didn't know what the definition of that was. He, he like he didn't say definition, but it was almost like he was trying to ask for a definition. He didn't know what it meant, and that reminded me earlier on in that segment, that the a white guy I think that's who that was that was. The, inter the person who was doing the interviewing, he said that the term striking inmates. Now, when you the term strike, on strike, I guess maybe you're protesting something or it could be defined as you are opposed to something, I guess. And then another term strike is attacking somebody or something. I think he may have been trying to utilize that term and two different ways, I guess, metaphorically, maybe that term doublespeak or using it in two ways. I thought about that because it, because the word violent kept coming up or that the inmates were being perceived as violent. And the guy was on the line saying, well, no, we, we're trying to uh, protest in the more, in the most, I guess, maybe passive means of we can get our point across, I guess. Well, well that's a metaphor, but we can be understood properly or for what we're trying to say and the things that we are wanting. Uh, I think that was an act of racism 
when he said uh, striking inmates, just the way that that was said. And that's all that I have right now. And thanks for allowing me to share. Definitely appreciate the attention to detail. Uh, the use of words is very important, and that word strike does have uh, violent connotations, absolutely. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Codified software developer. Uh, yes, good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the listeners and callers. Uh, I just wanted to uh, speak about the Rishi Taylor um, clip specifically, it uh, really bothered me um, that this white female was allowed to speak about this and be the expert on this, considering that it's been empirically proven that they have no interest or no empathy for anything that happens uh, to black people, uh, whether it's violent or otherwise. Um, and that reminds me of a report that I have very recently, um, I was uh, called for a, a, um, a therapy group for sexual assault survivors uh, from this, this organization that's here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and they do these free therapy groups. And my, ther my black female therapist um, said that I should go, that it would be a good thing. And I said, well, I know that it will be predominantly white females because I've been to therapy groups at this place before, and I don't know if I want to discuss tra traumatic events in front of white females. And she said, well, I think you'll get something constructive from it, so you should go. So I went, and the group, of course, there were six white females. Uh, there was uh, a black female, as there are two black females, including myself, and then the leader of the group was a black male uh, therapist. And we were asked to draw a graph of who we felt was uh, specifically um, at fault for our, our assault. And we get to this one white female who starts discussing hers, and she immediately says, well, I said it was the system. It's patriarchy and socioeconomics, and that's what creates these, these, uh, these problems. And I said, what, what system are you referring to? What is the system? And she said, well, you know, it's, it's the legal system and the economic, it's, it's the legal system and the educational system. And I did not want to bring in white supremacy because I did not feel that that was uh, appropriate for that group. So I did not say that. But I said, uh, well, I reject the idea of patriarchy being uh, at the core of, of what happened. Given who this male was, given his position in society, I reject that. It is not logical to me to say that patriarchy is at fault for that. And she uh, began to uh, retract her statement and sort of gave this very nebulous sort of uh, definition for patriarchy uh, which I just dismissed in hand. But uh, this seems to be a tactic that white females use, specifically when talking about sexual assault uh, that has happened to black females. Um, and I should note that this, um, this, this 
female started talking about this right after the other black female shared a particular, particularly horrendous report of what happened to her. So it was definitely an act of racism. Um, with that, I'll mute my line. Thank you so much for allowing me to share. Much obliged, codified software developer. Cannot have a plantation without white women, white men, other folks we've not heard from at all. Yes, sir. Peace, peace, Gus, um, callers and listeners. Rest in power, Sister Pam. Um, I just wanted to ask the fam or, you know, the show, if um, you've heard about the um, the Pope um, comparing the, 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 the sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, he's saying it's corrupt, it's, you know, it's extra men, and it's, you know, so he's vowing to eradicate the the um the sexual abuse of children and so forth. Do you think that that's genuine or do you think that that's a ploy because they're pushing the the pedophile agenda and they're trying to normalize the pedophile agenda they're they're being very very diligent um in that aspect and I just wanted to um ask the show that. And also, uh, before I mute my line, wanted to know if the term uh, white supremacy is, in fact, a metaphor. Thank you for taking my call. I'll mute my line. Uh, let's see. Uh, the way it could be, depending on the way that you use it, the way that uh, I use it, uh, I do not think that that is a metaphor because I'm using that to describe a system and a specific group of people and how they are behaving themselves uh, on the planet. I do not think, I think that's the way that I'm using it. And I'm being very specific uh, with who I'm talking about. And I emphasize that when I give my definition uh, of white supremacy, saying it is a system of people. Uh, I'm being very explicit uh, with regards to when I, what I mean when I say the term white supremacy. Your question about the, your question about the Pope, uh, I do not think, I don't, it, doesn't matter who it is. Uh, my general response to that, and you can hear other people can respond uh, as we continue. Uh, my response would be it is irrelevant uh, which white person, male, female, anywhere on the planet, what they say about eradicating sexual abuse of children. Reese Taylor, the system of racism, white supremacy, white culture, white people, they have shown they do not care about children. Somebody says that all the time. They do not care about children uh, and sexual abuse, sexual molestation that is rampant throughout the system of racism, white supremacy. It is rampant throughout white history. It is rampant throughout white culture. They bragged about this at points. I have no, there's no reason. There's no logical reason why I would accept that from any white person at this point in 2020. One eight. If this was a problem that they really wanted to address, they could have done that years ago. This is a big part of what it means to be white. That's why you keep seeing these incidents over and over 
and over Reese Taylor. I didn't play anything about the Catholic Church. I played Reese Taylor. Uh, other folks can answer that question as we proceed. Much obliged, sir. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all. If you have comments, questions, proceed. Oh, good. Good evening, Gus, and all the listeners. Um, I do have a couple of thoughts. Um, if I may real quick say something about workplace racism, I wasn't able to call in, but I was listening the part about social media and whether or not you should allow people that you work with to be in your quote unquote friends list. I agree. I think the sentiment was, is that you should not. But if we're talking about Facebook, you can mark your post so that where well, your entire profile, so that it's private, so that nobody on your job can look up your name and find you because whether they're your friends or not, if you have a public profile, all they got to do is type in your name and they can pull it up just like how may she rest in peace. Uh, Pam, some of her relatives were found on Facebook. So you can make your profile private. Um, you can also just limit posts to those you have made a connection, quote unquote, friend with on the network. And you can even exclude friends that you don't want to see the post. So I just I wasn't able to call in Thursday night, um, but I just wanted to offer that suggestion on that. Also, this network has built a social media platform. That's the business I am. I am in. Of this media business. So, you know, I thought that that was a good suggestion uh, to offer up. On the subject of racial classifications, this is a debate, not really a debate, but a conversation I've had with one of my cousins who says, you know, he only goes by human. He said, I'm a human being. I'm not anything else that you want to, you know, throw a label on. Um, in terms of racial classifications, though, it's my understanding that the people in charge do the classifying. I think I've heard Mr. Fuller even say that the victims don't do the classifying. Okay. And the, as far as the term black goes from my reading of us history, I don't know about other parts of the world, but my reading of us history, white people either called you a Negro or a nigger. That's your that's your designation by um, racist, okay? Nigger or Negro. Um, that was Negro was the official designation by the U.S. government. Uh, sometime in the '60s, black people said we don't want to be called Negroes. We want to be called black. That was also adopted by Stevie Biko, um, a freedom fighter in South Africa. He named his organization using that term. So, but I agree that uh, once we in this system, which I hope is in my lifetime, then we can sort out how we want to refer to each other. And one last thing, um, I used to despise using the term African-American, which I heard, I don't know for sure that Jesse Jackson came up with that. Um, it is not a racial designation. It's a nationality. 
Um, and it's part nationality, the American part. That's what they call U.S. citizens, American, as a nationality. African is a continental designation. So I don't like using that term, African-American, because I don't want to be identified anywhere in the world as an American, because in my opinion, it's the birthplace of, of the system of slavery practicing racism. Thanks for taking my call. Founder of the Black Talk Radio Network, Mr. Scotty Reed. Much obliged, sir. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all. If you have a hand up, proceed. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, Emmy. Greetings, beautiful people. Um, thank you for the broadcast that you had for Pam. I respect the way that you have maintained her integrity and her work. Um, there were a couple things that I wanted to comment on. I'm glad that Ivy brought up the conversation about classification because I did listen to the archived show and it was something that I was kind of thinking about for a while, like, you know, why does this matter? Why, like, why does it really matter? And at the crux of it, it's an identity thing. Um, like, we really so badly need to be able to identify ourselves because we can't identify ourselves with 100% certainty. And that leaves a very big void inside of us that we're trying to feel, I think these are my postulations. And so with that, I think one thing that would be helpful is if we kind of just accepted that fact that we cannot place ourselves specifically in a location. That's not anything, even far, far, far advanced genetics testing wouldn't be able to do that for us and, and probably not even satisfied in a way that would say, okay, I'm 100% sure that this is it and not to mention we're a miscegenated population so if we could accept that very painful fact then the label i think might lose its significance um i think that i can't speak for mr neely fuller jr but one of the things that i think that he might be getting at with the no white people called themselves white for so long let's just keep calling them that is I think just like with the statues and the street names and the songs, I just heard a clip on NPR today about Dixie, um, the song Dixie and white people want some of them wanting to keep it as a, you know, very famous popular song that nothing's wrong with it and whatever. But the more that these things are removed, so the songs, the statues, the street names, the easier it will become for us to forget and the harder I think it will become to make the argument, despite overwhelming evidence that a system of racism, white supremacy exists and existed then, um, because it just won't be all the time in our face. So if you know, I think there's a lot of power in saying, you know, maybe not saying I'm black, because when you say I am, that's a very powerful statement, but I'm classified as black. I think that completely puts it into focus, you know, what's going on with the labels, that they are labels placed by white people you know, or people who classify themselves as white. So anyway, it was just something I was thinking about. 
Um, I thought it was very interesting in the clip about the polls that when the interviewer asked Miss Rose, I believe her name was, to begin speaking, she said, well, what's going on? And it made me think of Dr. Welsing because she said that, you know, we enact our confusion or, you know, we perform our confusion on a very regular basis, especially with saying things like what's going on. Um, there's something that I'm finding that's disturbing whenever we begin talking and we as non-white people begin talking about any of our victimization or our traumas or our stories. I've noticed it a lot in news clips that there's this really very sad, almost dramatic theatrical type of music that's played. Um, and not to say that our stories and our commentary doesn't warrant um, compassion and empathy, but there's something that's weird about it. Like, I think that if we could just speak and say our story without this, like, really dramatic violin playing in the background, that the story itself would just be more potent. It could just be me. Um, and the clip about the rape and Rosa Parks, the woman speaking kept saying boys, 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 boys. And never once did she deviate from labeling the rapist as boys, boys. And it was understandable when she said, well, that's the way that they viewed them. Like, you know, their peers or their family members viewed them as boys just wanting to have fun. But she herself referred to them as boys. So, I, you know, that was very interesting because that means that she places them the same way they place them. And I don't know if she was paying attention to that or not. Um, I didn't know that anything happened with Mr. Firefighter's mom. So I don't know if you'll listen to this, but I'm very sorry. Um, so, and I think that is all that I have. So, um, I thank you all for listening. Can I be heard? On cue. <laughs> uh, I would first like to uh, to say because uh, uh, I've heard uh, a couple people mention about my uh, my mom. Uh, uh, the only thing I can say to you is thank you. Uh, but I would just like to emphasize my mom uh, lived to be ninety years old, and uh, she, according to what she she mentioned to her uh, offspring that she made a prayer to uh, to uh, uh, ask the creator to uh, assist her into uh, being committed to her children. And uh, you are you have been in the company of her hardest project by far, as far as one fifth of those uh, offspring. So uh, it's it's a fulfilled uh, uh, life as far as I'm concerned uh, with her and my experiences with her. And uh, so I'm not sure on what grieving means uh, because from what I've heard, it means uh, that have not been the case with me uh, because she uh, accomplished all of the things that she uh informed her children that she set out to do. And all of us are going to uh, 
have that day ourselves. That's called death day. But in between birthday and death day, uh, I would suggest that uh, everyone attempts to follow somewhat in the direction that my mother did. Uh, other than that, uh, uh, white supremacy uh, is a reality. Uh, I would say, if anything, is a cliche or a metaphor, it would be white privilege, <laughs> as far as that's concerned. Uh, and uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, Gus um, and all the people. I've recently listened to your podcast. Um, very good. I'm, I'm late to hearing everything that's going on. I wanted to make a comment about the podcast you put up a few days ago, Gus, about Mr. Thornton. I was probably 30 around the time that happened. I don't remember and with all the trauma that's been going on. I'm surprised that uh, I'm not surprised that I forgot him. It triggered me because where I work at, and I know you, you don't like metaphors, but it is a resemblance of society. I see the same thing. I've heard a lot of you guys, and I'm sorry for your loss, retired firefighter. My mother recently had a stroke a few years back. Um, I hope I'm strong when it gets to that point. Um, at my place of work, I see a variety of people, and I know that many times, and a lot of things that I've heard of how to stay on code and what to do, one thing that I've noticed is it's an ongoing battle. And I know it's another metaphor, but it's something that you go through, and it doesn't end. Words, I understand, are very, very important. At my place of work, they said that I abandoned my building, which is very interesting because I don't know how you can abandon a building, but that's one of the things they said in a way to punish me. Um, I recently, I myself, I'm alone. I sick to myself. I don't really talk to that many people, even people that are black. I, I find out at the workplace, we get a little bit too comfortable. We tell a little bit too much. We talk a little bit too much. These people don't care about us. So I stick to myself, thinking that that would be okay. Well, to make a long story short, sorry for the metaphor, a friend of mine that I work with tells me that, you know, a buddy of mine over at one of the buildings said, you know, he saw you. I said, he did? He said, yeah, he doesn't know your name, though. I said, well, what did he say about me? Me and this gentleman had worked together for over three years, so he knows my name. He said, well, yeah, there was this black gentleman he would stand outside the building, very quiet, and he would smoke a cigarette on break. You know, I think he might be a drug dealer. So my friend says to himself, you think because he's quiet, 
and teach them stuff that he was drug dealing. He said, well, and this is where he tells on himself, well, that's what I would do when I did back in the day. So my story, and I have many more stories, and I don't want to clog up the line, is this is going to be an ongoing battle. Everyone, I want you to know that. This is something that they would change the word. They would change the narrative. They would change everything. Why in Jesus' name, and I'm sorry to bring his name into this, but are we even having this conversation about race and all this other stuff of all this, the history that we have? We have pictures and documentation that don't even need words anymore. This is a conversation that we do not even need to be having anymore. So I ask myself, what other force is pushing this? What other, because if it's just white people, I myself, and I won't speak for anybody else, they are not smarter than us. They are not better than us. I have been in these rooms. I have seen them. They are not. You type in anything on the Internet, and I tell people, anytime you feel down and out, just search the Internet. You will see many things that show us on a daily basis, anytime we get depressed or feel overwhelmed with all this negativity, to know that they are not superior. But I do believe justice and white supremacy is true. It is in this form that is going to continue to keep us all down in whatever form we have. So I say to everyone listening, be more concerned about your family and the close friends that care about you. Those are the things that matter. And I'm finished. Thank you for letting me see. Much obliged, sir. Uh, Princess, did you have uh, commentary? Hold on just one moment because I'm just now getting into the house from work. Won't be a whole lot of holding. We have 10 minutes, so hopefully you'll be able to get situated soon. While we're waiting, did any other folks, did we miss anybody else? Anybody else have a hand up that we've not heard from at all? We nabbed everybody? Spectacular. Did you need a few more moments to get yourself together, Princess? Okay. Um, uh, real quick. Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, I would say to the last caller, it's hard trying to keep to yourself a lot of times because white people will make it where um, they try and make it seem as if uh, you're a problem just simply just because you're trying to be codified or, you know, keep to yourself and just be low-key. It's kind of damn if you do, damn if you don't. And then, unfortunately, you have uh, other uh, victims uh, that will placate that as well because of their confusion. So I know for me personally, it causes me to... It it causes me to have my anti-black moments as well. So in my situation, at my job, I work with a lot of uh, Puerto Ricans and um, Latinos, you know, where I work at. So that's kind of a good thing, but it's, for me, always a constant reminder that I have no allies other than um, my other 
black friends, who's Haitian, um, you know, coworker. But other than that, we have no allies. Her and I talk about it all the time. And um, so we're kind of on on the same page and level of understanding. But um, I also wanted to briefly share, um, I know I hadn't been able to really talk about it that much because just still trying to process it, but to make a long story short, I had shared with you guys about a year ago, uh, a couple of years ago before I left to New Orleans, that my mother was in a tragic arrangement and I had a situation I had a situation at her house where um this guy, it was a biker guy that um you know, whenever I was getting off from work, he was always there. Uh he he would make little smart comments, you know, whenever he would be in the house and my mom was gone to work, it was like he, he'd wait until I was alone before uh, he he would want to say anything directly to me, like, oh, I'm taking over the house or, you know, however he worded it. But he was letting me know that there's a new new person in, in town and he he's here to stay. And um, so my codification... Uh, had me playing the cow uh, loud in the house and him having to be tortured hearing everybody, including Gus, uh, talking about white supremacy uh, explicitly. Um, Fast forward to now, uh, I shared with another listener that I've grown close to over the year or so but um, recently, uh, I have no idea why. I still am trying to understand. But basically, my mom is uh, getting married to this individual. So I'm in the process of leaving Florida for good. <laughs> and... Um, but I, I just, um, my tolerance for black people and just this, this whole business with Area 8 and, you know, just like the last caller said, we, there's pictures, there's, there's so much material out there. I, I, like I said, I, I'm, this is, 2018 for me is like a year of uh, conclusions. 2018 and beyond is a year for conclusions on things. I'm not in the business of trying to convince anybody that white supremacy or racism or whatever word you want to use is real. If you don't get it by now, um, you just got to be left behind. And... um, like my threshold has been reached with um, people on this one. So unfortunately, you know, like I said, I I just, um, you know, maybe that's cold, but I've been through a lot with my mom and um, 
you know, it just seems like, uh, I don't know, but that's, that's just, uh, in a nutshell, what's going on. I'd have to go into more detail about everything else, but. That's all for now. Much obliged, Princess. Lots of metaphors uh, used there uh, and in general uh, on the broadcast. There were a number of them. And to the caller uh, who spoke before, it's not that Gus doesn't like metaphors. It's that consistently the use of metaphors is producing confusion or at minimum it is not producing clear understanding. That's the main issue. It's not about like or dislike. It's following logic uh, and trying to be more precise with our use of words. Very important distinction. Any other folks uh, have final com Oh, I myself had a comment. I thought that was a great point Red made about uh, in Seattle, it would have been grand for them to say, well, yes, we have had to uh, remove lots of whites uh, who were shooting up and doing their heroin and whatever other drugs in the library facility. Yes, we have had to remove a number of them from the facility. Would have been great to get that explicitly in the report. Uh, when they were talking about that segment in Chicago, I thought it was the term progressive that was not explained or used at all instead of just saying that these are racists that would seem to be an accurate uh, term when he said that it's difficult to have honest conversations because these uh, whites in Oak Park in Chicago they know enough to not say certain things because they will get in trouble I thought that was so important on this broadcast, we say on a regular basis, I say on a regular basis, uh, Mr. Fuller has said uh, whites cannot be ignorant about racism. They will get in trouble with other white people. I don't think those whites in Oak Park were fearing that Pam the Great was going to come get them if they said the wrong thing about racism and got in this document. I don't I don't think. Pam had a syndicate in Chicago where she was going and roughing up white people uh, because of what they said or didn't say. If someone, you know, came to speak to them on issues of racism in the Windy City, as they say, I don't think that was the case. I think they were concerned that they might get in trouble with some of their other members of the white race if they got out there and said something or were shown in a certain manner. I could be incorrect, but I thought that was really important. And just in general, I'm totally disinterested. I think they said that was a 10 hour segment or a 10 piece installment that's supposed to stretch into, I think, October, they said that's starting this week. I'm not watching any of that. They've done tons of specials like this. PBS did a special a few years back called uh, American Promise, where they followed uh, some non-white children from the time that they were like five all the way through graduation and saw how racism impacted them in their classrooms and what have you. White people are not ignorant about racism. Showing these projects are not going to stop whites from practicing racism, white supremacy. Uh, it's like uh, terror porn. We talked about this before, and especially anything with Chicago. I'm not watching anything else. Uh, I don't care what it is, documentary, film i'm totally done uh whites go to chicago just to clown uh with these types of film projects they did one 
This is like from 30 years ago, around the same time as Candyman, which is about the same thing that I think of this project. Uh, they did a documentary in Chicago. They went and it was going to be on this black family. Oh, they're poor. And this is back when Cabrini Greens uh, still existed. Oh, we're poor and uh, destitute. And look at the Negras here. Oh, it's so terrible. And I think the first day or within the first week of filming, uh, the black child in the family was shot and killed. So then they just switched the focus of the documentary about his death and, oh, the drug addict family. And now she's doing, you know, twice the crack since her son died. They love these sort of projects to go in and show the black people stumbling and struggling in the system that they created. Uh, I have no interest in seeing this or anything else uh, uh, that is showcasing the dilapidated Negras of Chicago. I'll stop there. Anybody else have comments they need to get in? May I be heard? Let's see. Uh, Red and Nevada. I'll I'll be real quick. I promise. Um, one thing I forgot to add. I wore um, my shirt a couple of times. It was kind of uneventful. Um, I I usually when I wear the shirt, I'll wear like these sunglasses where you really can't see if I'm looking, you know, looking at you or not, basically. And I just saw like a one white woman, um, but read the shirt didn't you know, kind of, I guess she didn't have like a mad look on her face, but she quickly looked away. Um, and then, but for the most part, I basically have been ignored, but I, I feel like the, uh, but the second time I wore the shirt, because the first time I was really anxious. Um, the second time it wasn't as, you know, I wasn't as anxious about it. And, um, today there was just like a, possibly a woman. So, you know, one of the people who may or may not be classified as white, who may or may not speak Spanish, she read the shirt and she kind of gave me like this little half weak smile, but no one said anything to me and I'll mute my line. Thank you. Definitely let us know about folks wearing the counter racist t-shirts. There was another female caller who spoke up. That was me. Ivy can uh, King go because he hasn't spoken at all. Uh, Was Mr. Steele present? Uh, Yes, he is. Greetings, sir. Howdy, diddy. Um, it's uh, Ken Steele. I'm calling in from Los Angeles. Uh, check this out. Um, a caller earlier wanted to know uh, what the um, library's response was to the heroin epidemic in uh, in Seattle. And it's, uh, I just did a quick search, and um, some headlines were reading that the opioid epidemic is so bad that librarians are now learning to treat overdose. And uh, some uh, Seattle public libraries will now install sharks containers at some branches. And I hadn't noticed this, but I've seen these sort of containers at Walmart. And I always thought that they were for diabetics. I never put the fact that, uh, that there are heroin users, um, there are junkies uh, that are, are shooting up inside uh, the bathroom at these public uh, institutions. I had no idea. So um, this, seems, uh, um, this seems very um, uh, interesting compared to the reactions that they had to small children. I think that more care is being taken on the part of uh, the Seattle library system um, for junkies than there are uh, care for um, black children who are trying to use the library, and uh, this story um, 
is very, very close to me because uh, I too was a black child in a library all throughout my youth, and um, and luckily uh, my my parents, uh, one of my parents was in charge of the library, but uh, it, it was. Um, it, it would be really unfortunate if I were subject to that level of treatment at the particular library that I grew up in. But um, yeah, just um, a, a very, very uh, that that story probably um, affected me the most simply because it just represents um, the viciousness with which uh, the system is treating um, uh, black children and. Um, Indeed. Much obliged, Mr. Steele. Uh, we did our three hours. Uh, I will get uh, Ivy in if you can be concise with your comment to conclude things. Um, yes, uh, I was going to say uh, great to hear from Amy. Her um, commentary was brilliant as usual. I hope that uh, she continues to call in, um, that she's like back officially. Um, as far as the library, I just want to say that um, white people are terrorists. Um, you should never throw a child out of a library unless, or excuse me, you should never remove a child from a library unless it's really serious. Um, but that is what they do. They fed our children to, they fed our babies to, to alligators. They um, mocked a, a, a child for being saved from a gorilla. They murdered Tamir Rice. This is what they do. And the last thing I wanted to say is I wish you had your applause button when um, the firefighter said that white privilege was a, uh, was a, was a metaphor. That is just brilliant. I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. Indeed. Much obliged, Ivy. Uh, glad we were able to get in. Thanks, Ivy, for helping to get Mr. Steele in before we exited. Library report, that one also uh, had a lot of resonance for me, uh, having been kicked, excuse me, uh, excused, I think that was the word, excluded uh, from the library facility myself and my friends uh, that I was with as well, having it seen having seen that happen to them as well. Uh, at any rate, uh, we will conclude for today. We should be back uh, in the middle of the week. Uh, you can check Black Talk Radio Network, any of the social media outlets. I did not get any uh, tips. Is that legitimate? No one has any information, even that they can. Even, how about this? If you are listening to the archives, if you have any information, suggestions on how someone with a PC can do basic voice record. It doesn't need to be anything elaborate. We're not adding, you know, guitar riffs or anything. Just basic, straightforward uh, voice recording that will have, you know, quality audio uh, for a PC. If someone has suggestions, you can email untiljustice at gmail.com and I will share those uh, for the listeners who have volunteered to narrate Black Love is a Revolutionary Act book club this coming Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we had two volunteers. If any other folks, if uh, if we're going to make it a, a collaborative effort, which is fine, the book is, uh, it's not short. Uh, if we, any other folks would like to volunteer, that way, you know, it would be less work on any one person individually. Uh, you can email me that as well. Uh, either way, we will begin in this Friday. Uh, you can get the Kindle, uh, Kindle version of the book from Amazon. With that, much obliged to everyone who participated. I hope it was worthy of your time and energy. As I state consistently, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. We will need our brain...
computers functioning at maximum efficiency to solve this problem. Dr. Welsing, I think Pam the Great as well, would definitely encourage sobriety. Uh, let's leave white poisons alone. Work seriously about the business of solving this problem ASAP. In addition to being sober, every time we are in a vehicle, let's be buckled up. Let's minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. With that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.